Scotty here. I was just thinking of a really simple example of my worldview with regard to COVID vaccines and all sorts of precautions with regard to, to COVID. And it just it explains how, how I, I view how the, the world works. So I believe COVID vaccines are effective and healthy and about one of the easiest, simplest things that you can do to optimize your health and effectiveness in life. Now, if I'm right, people who take COVID vaccines will have more reproductive success and be more effective in life and have longer, healthier lives than those who don't take COVID vaccines. If I'm wrong about the COVID vaccine and the right-wing critics of the vaccines are correct, then those of us who take the COVID vaccines will be less healthy, live shorter lives, and will have less reproductive success. Uh, I believe that, generally speaking, the lockdowns were a good idea with regard to COVID. And the people who, generally speaking, observed the lockdown policies and restrictions, generally speaking, I would expect to have a longer, healthier, more effective life than people who flouted the lockdowns. On the other hand, I think that for most people who take SSRIs, that they are not getting benefit, that they are suffering more harm. Right? When you take SSRIs, it reduces gray matter in your brain, so it reduces your cognitive capacity. So if I'm right, then most people who take SSRIs are going to be disadvantaged by taking SSRIs, and so they will have shorter lives, less effective lives, less happy lives, and they'll be less likely to reproduce. So I'm thinking of those, I think at least four conservative right-wing talk show hosts were railing against the COVID vaccine and ended up uh, dying of COVID. So if I'm correct that the COVID vaccine is you know, better for most people than not taking it, then you'd have fewer such deaths. Uh, on the other hand, there are all sorts of you know, positions in medicine that are probably you know, worse for your health if you follow them. So it's not like either the liberal approach to life or the conservative approach to life is automatically better. It depends upon the circumstance. So I think, uh, generally speaking, a conservative approach to life, certainly in, in 2024, right? It's January 1, 2024, 9.23 a.m. here in Los Angeles. There's more skepticism of elites and of expertise and of doctors. So might make sense that, say, conservatives are less likely to get medicated with, say, SSRI medication or ADHD medication, and perhaps less likely to get their kids medicated with Ritalin and other ADHD medication. And so whichever strategy right, is superior, those people will enjoy happier, more effective lives. Because I was just listening to Dennis Prager and Julie Hartman talking about people who ruin holiday meals because they What's the number one reason for ruining a holiday meal, according to some, some news media source? And it's not politics, and it's not religion. It's people bringing up family disputes. And Dennis and Julie are talking about why do people bring up family disputes when, when they know it will just cause pain and harm? And Dennis and Julie had the idea, well, people lack uh, self-awareness and self-control. And... I was just thinking from my own experience with ADHD, I don't think that's the primary issue. If you walk around with a big gaping hole in your psyche, and I've had large swaths of my life where I was just walking around, just bleeding, <laughs> psychologically bleeding. And I know what it's like now to be on ADHD medication and off it. And I'm off it now for three days. And my, my 
brain just skips around, right? I'm, I'm like less effective at life and self-awareness, right, is not really going to solve the problem. And self-control is not really going to solve the, the problem. I feel, you know, the way that my brain takes me when I'm not on my ADHD medication, it's so strong, these, you know, whatever's firing in my brain that uh, med- meditation and exercise is just not going to get the job done. And that's the, the dominant perspective among the elite treaters of ADHD, that for people with full-on, full-blown ADHD, they need to have first-line medication. So there's like fourth-line medication, such as Stratera, which is not a stimulant. But uh, it seems that those with expertise in ADHD recommend that if you've got full-on ADHD, you need the stimulant medication, which for people with ADHD does not work so much as a stimulant. It actually slows down the, the brain, allows them to focus. So the liberal approach to life of following expertise, following what doctors say, following the, the medical consensus, right, probably be more likely to have people get uh, med- medical solutions for what's called ADHD. And so if that's a more effective strategy in life, right, people will be happier, more effective, and they will have more reproductive success, just like Ashkenazi Jews in medieval Europe, right? For the first time, in medieval Europe, Jews became known as smarter than average, right? So prior to the 11th century, so prior to 900 years ago, there was no, no evidence that Jews were considered smarter than the people they were around. But due to selective evolutionary pressures on Ashkenazi Jews in Europe, the smarter, more effective Ashkenazi Jews were able to support more children, and they were able to support more children working in white-collar industries. The majority of Ashkenazi Jews have worked in white-collar professions since the 14th century. So smart Ashkenazi Jews reproduced, had more children. Less intelligent Ashkenazi Jews weren't able to support more children, and they also were more likely to convert to Christianity. Because in 13th century Germany and France, or 21st century America today, Jewish life is incredibly competitive. You don't want to be the biggest loser in your shul. You don't want to be the poorest member of your shul. And if you're, you're falling behind at life, it's, it's pretty painful in, in Jewish life because it is more intense and, and more competitive than what I remember from my years in Anglo life. So whatever strategy you choose. And so I see the world as circumstances in which different strategies work better than other strategies. And in some circumstances, a left-wing collectivist egalitarian solution will work better than a right-wing authoritarian hierarchical solution. In other circumstances in life, such as a police response or a military response, an emergency response, a hierarchical authoritarian response, you need a commander at a place like Uvalde when you've got a police response to a school shooting because they didn't have someone on the spot taking command of that situation took 77 minutes before someone finally opened an unlocked door and confronted the shooter. So there are all sorts of circumstances in life where an authoritarian hierarchical approach works better. Then there are other circumstances in life where an egalitarian uh, collectivist approach works better. And as the world changes around us, sometimes the the left-wing approach works better, sometimes the right-wing approach works better. And uh, I I think COVID vaccines are are good things, but uh, we'll find out, right? It'll just work through the population. So so too with the reactions to the 2020 election. I believe that uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats won won the, the 2020 presidential election in the United States. And it seems like most Republicans do not believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected. 
Now, if they are right, that will produce people on the, the Republican end of the spectrum. If they are correct, then that will produce a more skeptical perspective on elites and on institutions. And that may prove to be a more adaptive approach to life, or it may prove to be a less adaptive. I think it's a less adaptive, less effective approach to life to think that the you know the ballots were, were rigged and that uh, Joe Biden you know, won through illegitimate means. I think the Democrats were more effective at changing the rules going into the 2020 election, right? They were able to change the rules more effectively, but they did it legally, right? They were more effective at using the legal system to support, you know, what they wanted to have happen, and the Democrats were more effective, and so they won because they were more effective. And from from my perspective, you, you should learn from that. How were the Democrats more effective? What rules did they push through that aided their side? Where do Republicans need to push back? Do we need more legal expertise? Do we need more expertise with regard to voting and procedures and, and laws? I, I think we we do. And I think the, the Democrats just won over the Republicans in large part in 2020 because they had more expertise with regard to the electoral system. So if Republicans are going to fight back, they need to develop expertise with regard to the legal system. I don't know if you remember two years ago, three years ago, there was growing fear on the part of the dissident right that we would no longer have platforms to talk freely in live streams such as this one. And we've had a growth of alternative institutions. So you can build alternative institutions, right? We've got Rumble, we've got Odyssey, we've got Kick, we've got Twitter now. So we have had a substantial growth in right-wing social media and right-wing live streaming and right-wing media institutions so that we didn't have the crackdown to the extent on, on free speech that we feared. We have Elon Musk you know, buying Twitter, all sorts of people had their accounts restored. So there are ways that we can take back institutions. All right? You often hear that on the right. We need to, you know, we need to build alternative institutions. All right? This is Matt from Aporia Magazine. Apparently, Lauren Southern's parents were banned from Airbnb because of Lauren Southern. We need to build alternative institutions. A few brief thoughts on Lauren Southern's parents being banned from Airbnb for the crime of birthing a dissident, written by Matthew Archer. In the latest example of Globocorp unpersoning, Airbnb has apparently banned the parents of the political commentator Lauren Southern. You can see her tweet down below. If you hadn't yet got the memo, despite it repeatedly punching you in the face, this is precisely why we need to build alternative institutions. However, that call has become something of a trope amongst the anti-woke. Indeed, you see it stated multiple times in the replies to Miss Southern's tweet. It seems to have become something of an unthinking meme, and it needs serious scrutiny. After all, how precisely would we build a non-censorious competitor to the $75 billion Airbnb megalith? It's not that alternative institutions can never be built, examples abound. It's just obviously not always possible to do so. Even when it is, it might be wildly impractical, risky, or the least good option. It's a war cry slogan, not a serious proposal for change. Take one comparatively trivial example. Staffing. We live in a world where 40% of US and Canadian academics would not hire a Trump supporter. Only 7-18% of US undergraduates show strong support for free speech. 37% say it's acceptable to shout down a speaker. And 44% agree that, quote, people who don't respect others don't deserve the right of free speech, end quote. 
But here's the icky truth a lot of anti-woke types don't want to hear. A large chunk of the people with these reprehensible views are much more intelligent than you. Indeed, it's a sign of intelligence that they have figured out the social strategy that will allow. So what's more important for individuals than building alternative institutions? Uh, developing a more sophisticated and realistic approach to life. So for most people, they don't have the capability of building an institution, right? And it shouldn't be their number one focus, right? For most people, their number one focus should be their family and then their extended family, their friends, their community, their profession, their education, their hobbies and interests. So more important than building institutions, it's, it's building an effective approach to life. For rapid advancement. And these people are precisely the type our Airbnb competitor will need to hire to grow. But even before our hypothetical business hit a billion dollar market cap, at which point, by the way, it would likely be bought out by Globocorp, we would be struggling to staff it with competent non-workers under the age of 30. Okay, abandoned ship, you say. After all, perhaps we don't need to go to the trouble of building anything. We can shop elsewhere. What do they say? Go woke? Go broke? Of course, this is just more silliness. The vast majority of Airbnb's current and potential customers don't care one jot about such things. They just want a cheap weekend getaway in Ibiza. Or so if you're really interested in building alternative institutions, I think someone like uh, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, chose the most effective path forward. I mean, there's an effective executive, right? If, if this is your priority, right, you'd want to support someone like Ron DeSantis. He seems to know how to move the levers of power, right? Uh, Donald Trump is simply not very good at running things. He's not a particularly effective chief executive. He has never shown that, that ability. Now, the conservative movement is growing around him. They are developing thousands of names of people to take top civil service positions if Trump wins again. So the conservative movement is getting smarter. I think they'll wage a much more effective electoral and electoral law strategy this time around. To share a cool apartment near the Colosseum with some local Italians who think three spoons of sugar is a vital ingredient in espresso. Normies are not going to boycott Airbnb in the same way you're not going to stop buying goods associated with Israel. Perhaps a company could go too woke, but have any actually gone broke? Have any even suffered serious financial difficulty? That's a genuine question. Comments below, please. Perhaps a few hyperwoke films have bombed, but I can't think of any. I can't think of other examples. If Airbnb started cancelling more normal people, I'm sure this pithy max. Well, you know why most work institutions don't go broke? Because they have pretty smart, effective people running them. So the smarter the people you have running your institutions, generally speaking, the more effective they will be. Why is Harvard in so much trouble right now? In large part because they, they don't have someone who's terribly smart running the show, all right? They have an affirmative action hire. Sim would hold. But as it stands, it's just a rallying call for people who care about fighting wokeism. And most people don't. Sure, they say they care when asked in a survey. And perhaps they change to voting for a centre-right party. But they have no skin in the game. Well, it, it's maladaptive for most people to make politics their number one priority in life. right? For most people, it should be somewhere between priority number five and priority number ten.
Outside of elections and the the occasional wacky headline about the TV chef Jamie Oliver culturally appropriating a recipe for Jamaican rice, nobody thinks about this stuff. It's just you and your elite 115 plus IQ friends. In fact, the people being unpersoned are, are often so unlikable or controversial that I would bet a handsome sum that one could easily manipulate a good section of the public into supporting such censorship. After all, how do you think it worked in Soviet Russia? You know, the one with proper communism? So there are myriad problems with we need to build alternative institutions. Another one is that it's rooted in a materialist view of the world, in the idea that the economy is the primary way we relate to each other. This was partly why left-wing radicals abandoned traditional Marxism in the first place. The excessive focus on the means of production overlooked the whole reason for the revolution. Likewise, build alternative institutions defaults us into a worldview of warped economic premises. If we build it, they will come. But unless the product, product we build is superior, they certainly won't come, because, again, nobody really cares. The reason alternative media are one of the few exceptions to this rule is obvious. Though our writers might not have the most beautiful prose or the most succinct arguments, we swim against, the predictable, against predictable and dull tides. We don't need to be the most polished publication to be successful. In short, outside of the places where it makes sense, like creating new media, build alternative institutions is the type of thing I'd expect to hear from a juvenile free-market libertarian lurking in the corners of the anarcho-capitalist subreddit. It's the clarion call of the 19-year-old neckbeard who is desperate to tell you how Mises' praxeology proves your opinion is wrong. The real way to win these fights is obvious, through the law. Of course, you don't have to be a libertarian neckbeard to get angsty here. Liberals like Sam Harris staunchly defend Twitter's right. And Nathan Kofnis talks about the need for conservatives and, and people who are realistic about group differences to go into academia because academics have disproportionate influence on society. Once you seize the high cultural intellectual ground of a society, then you have much more ability to you know, push on the, the various levers of power. And academy is one of the most significant levers of power as a private company to kick off Trump and anyone who breaches terms of service. Of course, one could reply that Globocorp's terms of service are so purposefully vague as to endanger most dissident opinion. At which point we're back at building... By definition, dissident opinion is going to be dangerous, right? There's no way to make dissident opinion safe, right? People want to be heroes, but they don't want to pay a price for it. They don't want to risk their job, risk their prestige, risk their position in society. I mean, we all wish we could be heroes without any danger, but you can't be heroic without being willing to take risks and to face danger. So a lot of people take heroic stances and then realize that they can't live up to them and crumble under pressure. It's like uh, Avram's wife, Sarai, in, in the Bible, right? She tells her husband, well, go make a baby with our maidservant. But once the, Abraham did exactly what she said, Sarai could not handle it. She, she lost her mind. She was terribly cruel to the maidservant and Abraham's son and drove them out of the camp. So very common, uh, I see, people take on heroic missions and then crumble because they can't handle the consequences. The new Twitter, or I guess just buy Twitter and try to do better. But there's surely a common sense go-between. Namely, when a company like Twitter or Airbnb becomes so big that it essentially functions as the town square or the short-term rental marketplace, it acquires new responsibilities. 
I'm not going to pretend to work out the details in a blog post. I'll let the lawyers argue over that. But I do want to address the aforementioned reply. Again, what gives anybody the right to dictate who, who uses a private company other than its owners? So what if it's a big company? Well, one reply is fairly obvious. Size matters. Or, more precisely, market dominance and access matters. As Colin Wright found out when he was banned from PayPal and Etsy, it's not like we can build new payment rails or a new bank overnight. Right, so it depends on what your goals are in life. Right? For all sorts of goals, you need to maintain a certain base level of social acceptability, and therefore it's maladaptive for you to say dissident things publicly distant things outside of anywhere but a small circle of friends. So that's the great thing about belonging to an Orthodox synagogue, right? You can say some pretty outrageous things and it's not going to come back to hurt you, particularly because you're often gathering on the Sabbath where there's no recording of what anybody's saying. If you belong to a tight knit in group, all right, there's a lot more freedom of speech, but you, you know, take that freedom of speech outside your strongly identifying in group and you're going to get into a ton of trouble. Clearly, some private companies in this regard are operating, ser operating services that should legally be regarded as inalienable rights. Like and uh, Ron DeSantis, if you want this kind of legal political crackdown on big companies, then Ron DeSantis has, has got to be your man. All right. Uh, this is a conversation that started my whole train of thinking. Julie Hartman talking with Dennis Finding Prager. joie de vivre. In no, our v. everyday. It's pronounced okay. v. Joie de vivre. Sean, Sean is laughing. And when I did it on air, he stopped me and had me redo it. They, they just have more of a sense of letting time pass. They're, they're just, they find that to be more acceptable. And they, it's very distracting. Very. Anyway. His role is to hurt our show. <laughs> and he succeeds. <laughs> okay, so, go ahead. So, but one of the things that we discussed was, and, and it just made me think of it when you uh, talked about how men tend to think of one thing at a time. Yeah. That is true of the French. They tend not to multitask in the same so way. So enjoy the moment. Yes. The yeah, I, I noticed this traveling overseas, you do get a sense that a lot of other countries have a much higher quality of life than we do in the United States, in large part because they're more in common with each other, uh, as opposed to uh, living in Los Angeles or New York City or San Francisco, where you feel very little in common with the other people in your block. Yes, and she said they just they, they just have more of a sense of letting time pass. They're, they're just they find that to be more acceptable and they don't multitask. If they're having a conversation with you, they're in it. If they're eating, no, that's they're a very in good it. rule for enjoying life. In her so yeah, people I notice people who go to France or, or people who go to Italy in particular come back just kind of amazing at the higher quality of life. And when I went to Australia, my first day back in, in Australia a couple of years ago, I was just stunned at the higher quality of life, just the, the, the release of, of fear from you know, having some violent crime or being mugged or just the, the amount of filth and homelessness and dysfunction that you wade through in Los Angeles and you try to become immune to it, but then you don't realize how bad it is until you get back to a place like Sydney where there's virtually no homelessness, virtually no crime, where you can walk pretty much anywhere you want, any any day, any time you want, and you realize the enormous price that you pay for the vast amount of dysfunction in American cities. Her book yes. has all of these If you can do it, tips, I can right. do it. I, I, I call it compartmentalizing. Otherwise, you can't get through life. I struggle to do that. Uh, I, I'm sure you do. I, I know you and you're female. It's a, so between you and female, it's, yeah. a, it's a difficult. But, but I, I have been able to do that because I've been tested. And I have been able to compartmentalize. And, and it was life-saving. So I have an interesting uh, 
an interesting thought in light of the holiday season we're now in the midst of between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I and I could, could include Hanukkah, but the vast majority of Americans are having Christmas. So uh, I just want to make it clear I'm not being discriminatory against my own religion. Okay. So here here is a very you'll, – you'll really get a charge out of this. So there was an article, and I can't remember. It was a major – So not a good idea to say I've got something interesting to say, and you'll really enjoy this, or you'll really get a charge – out of this, right? If you got something interesting to say, just say it. Like, skip all these, you know, self-serving preambles. But anyway, I had no intention of doing a show today. But listening to this on a day without my ADHD medication, I just felt, you know, how much my mind was was skipping around as opposed to when I'm medicated. And the reason I'm not medicated today is because I I conserved my ADHD medication after losing half of it. And so I, I'm conserving it for those times when when I most need it until I've got like you know a full full, you know, 30, 60 day supply, then I can kind of calm down. But I noticed you know, how different I am without my ADHD medication. And I was listening to talk about the power of self-awareness and self-discipline and realizing with my own ADHD that self-discipline and self-awareness just doesn't get me very far. Like we live life as though we've got free will. Like we imagine, hey, it's January 1st. I've got a day, you know, wide open to me. There are all these possibilities. I can choose this, this or this. So we, we live life with this feeling of a huge amount of free will. But then we look back at our life and we understand our life as, wow, given who I was at that time, I could not have acted differently. So that's a way that over the last 10 years or so, I've been able to let go of regret by taking on the perspective that given who I was at particular times, particular places, I could not have acted differently. So we live our lives as though we have free will. But we, I think we understand our lives with uh, much less of a sense of agency and much more of a sense of fate. Uh, outlet, but I don't remember. It was the New York Times. I, I don't remember. And it was the, the biggest, I'm paraphrasing, sort of the biggest. I haven't made any resolutions. I think overall they're probably a good thing rather than a, a bad thing. I need to get a new CPAP machine. That's... <laughs> I think that's near the top of my resolutions. And I'd like to get my weight under 170. So my weight is consistently between 170 and 173. So ideally, I'd like to be at 160. I'm almost six foot tall. I'd like to weigh 160 pounds. I'm not a huge believer in goals, though, because goals narrow your range of possibilities. You get too much focus, which is not necessarily the most adaptive thing. And there's a tremendous temptation to cheat, uh, to break ethical standards or other standards to achieve your goals. So we all know we're going to die, right? This is Ernest Becker, the fear of death. We all know we're going to die. And so the way that we live is through having hero systems, having behavior that we regard as heroic and behavior that we regard as cowardly. And so we sustain ourselves by our hero systems and we're constantly wanting to find victory, right? Where we feel good when we've got victory, when we're making progress towards our hero system, and we feel bad when we're falling short of our hero system. So what the heck was my show yesterday? I didn't didn't really develop this theme. Oh, yeah. So what would be the signs of victory for Israel and Gaza? So I'm a strong supporter of the Jewish state. I'm a Zionist. And, you know, that that's a big deal to me. And so I'm looking for signs of victory for Israel in Gaza. 
That's my hero system. And we all have a hero system. We're all looking for signs of victory. We're all looking for that sense. Ah, you know, now I've made progress. Now I've, I've graduated beyond the, the mediocrity and the humiliation and the failure and the sense of having shortchanged myself that has dogged me over these years. Now I, you know, now I'm on a path, you know, towards victory. And whatever our hero system, whether we're, you know, pro-Zionist, anti-Zionist, whether we're Republican or Democrat, right-wing, left-wing, Christian, Jew, secular, Muslim, we're all looking for signs of victory towards our hero system because to ward off the, the fear of death and the utter annihilation that we fear happens to us after we die, that the world will be essentially unchanged after we're gone, right? We subscribe to a hero system and then we feel good when we make progress, when the world makes progress, when the people around us, when that which we value is progressing towards the ideals of our particular hero system, which kind of give us strength to make it through the day. Because if we die and the world is essentially unchanged after, after we're gone, most of us will be absolutely crushed by our own insignificance. And so to ward off and deny, deny that feeling of insignificance, we subscribe to a hero system, whether it's you know, Dallas Cowboys are the greatest thing or Judaism is the greatest thing or Christianity or secular humanism or science. Right? We have this hero system and we're, we're just wired to look for signs of victory, signs of progress towards our hero system. And that's what sustains us. Holiday meal wreckers. Wreckers. Wreckers, yes. So what subjects are, oh. are the most likely to wreck your, your family uh, Christmas dinner or, or Thanksgiving dinner? So this was uh, published right before Thanksgiving. And then I did it. On, I did it, a show on this. I, that's the, one of the great beauties of talk radio. I was going to say, this is a tangent, but I, it's worth just noting. You know how lucky you are to talk to all these wonderful people that you get to interview. Uh, I do, Julie Hartman? It, yes. Oh, yes, of course. It, 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 it is a gift of this profession. Gift. That many of them are terrific people. Oh, absolutely. And callers. I mean, when I when I That's right. guest host your show, I learned so much from That's callers. Right. So I bounced this thing off. Right. And so if you've got a hero system like Dennis and Julie share a conservative Judeo-Christian hero system, and so there's a strong incentive to think that other people who share your hero system are just terrific people. And I'm not sure. I think we, we're highly predisposed towards thinking that people who share our hero system are terrific. Callers. So I'm going to ask you, this is great. What do you think? Maybe they're wrong. I'm not, uh, this was not, you know, given by God to Moses, but m maybe they're right. What do you think they listed as the single greatest uh, dinner wrecker subject? And who's they again? Who, who? The, who, I don't know. New York Times, well, Wall Street Journal. No, was... no. It, believe it or not, this was, it was, this was neutral. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I would say politics. That's what I would have said. It's exactly what I would have said. Correct. Or religion, not no, because that I... was that was lower on. So I'm looking at uh, my YouTube suggestions right now. So I've got ADHD. My mind's just skipping around. And one of the videos that YouTube wants to play me is Barry Weiss. And uh, honestly, I have no interest in what Barry Weiss has to say. But her video here is called Barry Weiss, why DEI must end for good, diversity, equity, inclusion. So do you know, without watching this video, I'm pretty sure I know why Barry Weiss believes that DEI must end for good because it's now seen as bad for the Jews, right? After all the widespread support for Hamas and for Gaza on American college campuses, right? A percentage of American Jews who were predisposed towards voting Democrat are seeing that their allies in the coalition of the fringe really aren't the allies that they thought. And they're coming to recognize that affirmative action and diversity, equity, inclusion 
is not good for the Jews. And so that's that's why many of these lefties now switching and going, oh, DEI must stand for good because it's seen as bad for the Jews. On the list. It was on the list, but right. it was lower the number than one politics. Thing is politics. So right. what did that you was say? number two. I was actually surprised at number one, but when I bounced it off listeners, it was a lot of verification. Family issues. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, that's a given, but I wouldn't. Well, why is it a given? I mean, that's, the, that's it's not a given. Well, you, you... So, why are family issues the number one wrecker of you know, holiday meals? And I don't think it's for the two reasons that uh, Dennis and Julie say because of lack of self awareness and lack of self-control it's because when you're bleeding inside when you're broken inside when you're hurting inside when you're not functioning very well you can't help but act out of that misery when i was a miserable kid i wanted to light fire so that the world outside of me was as miserable as the world inside of me i remember going to synagogue in something like october or november of 1993 at ohev shalom it was a conservative synagogue in orlando florida and that Saturday morning, I basically cried all the way through the services because I'd, I'd fled from my parents' home. Like, I was in about my sixth year of chronic fatigue syndrome. I fled from my parents' home to live with this woman who was so frustrated with me that she was going back to her ex-boyfriend and sleeping with him. And then, you know, coming home after being out all night. And I was just so anxious. I was living with her and I was so anxious and upset. And... I didn't know anyone in Orlando and I was on really bad terms with my parents because my previous girlfriend had written to my parents talking about all the places in the house where we'd had sex and how I you know, used her for sex. And my parents are conservative Christians who regard sexual sins as the most serious of sins. And my parents had written me out of the will. So I destroyed my relations with my parents and now my my relationship with this woman had fallen apart and I was, you know, a stranger in a strange city. I didn't know what was going to happen. And so almost all the way through the Saturday morning press service, I was crying. That was not a deliberate choice on my part. I was just terrified and, and frightened and just filled with, with fear. And so I think most people who, you know, family members who, who wreck family occasions or People in your regular life who wreck social interactions are probably, you know, operating out of that same sense of, of fear, frustration, that that psychic self-loathing, that that awful feeling that comes when your life isn't working and you don't see a way out. I don't think it's primarily lack of self-awareness, self-control, because I, I experience what I'm like when I'm not on my ADHD medication. I remember what I was like when I didn't take beef organ capsules. I was just so weak. And no matter my self-control, self-awareness, without my beef organ capsules, I was just a weak, weak little boy. You I guess just, politics, and I guess politics. I just think that is so off limits that people. Yeah, but it's even, not. But that's mm. the point. If it's the biggest single problem subject at a holiday meal, it's not a given. That's why it's so interesting. And to you and me, maybe I can't speak for you. Seriously, in this case, I don't know. I said, "Who the hell is going to raise family totally, issues that's why I, I, at their Thanksgiving I just or ruled Christmas it out meal?" As, it, you so, would think so. Right. What, what, oh, what kind of nut? You're going to bring up crappy family problems at this, you know, once or twice a year lunch or dinner? This is a whole Dennis and Julie episode unto its own, but there are some people in the world who just can't control themselves in many different ways. That is a good point. In many, many different ways. That's an example. That is an example. And you know what? We tend to think of people who lack control as those who overeat, those who overdrink, those who are addicted to cigarettes. But no, there's there are people who, who cannot emotionally regulate themselves or cannot read the room and put 
other people's. I have not shaken your hand. I know we've never done this on in, Dennis and Julie. In, in, in two years of this. I know that's, that that's a is, moment. That is such. So generally speaking, Orthodox Jews don't shake hands with women who are not not family. A wonderfully placed point. Oh. Well, it's, it's huge. And as I get older, it's endlessly fascinating to me to observe those people where the desire to pick a fight, to be combative, to be contrarian is something that has control over them and not something that they can control. But you made your superb, but you added a double, which caused me to shake your hand. Can't read the room. That is such a big deal. Can't read the room. Like you're not, wait a minute. You're not aware that if you raise that subject. It's the end of the joy of this holiday Totally. And, and I used to think that, well, it's, it's interesting because I, I think there's... If something's stuck in your craw, all right, it's going to come out. If you're not functioning, you're not going to be able to just pull it together for a family occasion or a, at work, all right? So, I mean, I, I remember living with someone who had bad premenstrual syndrome and she was able to pull it together when there were guests over. So we, we have, you know, some degree of freedom but if you have something debilitating going on with you, right, there are severe limits to how much you can control yourself. Some people who really just have a blind spot, like they don't realize that bringing up that subject is going to wreak havoc on the dinner or cause other people to be uncomfortable. But I actually. So when was the last time I spoke with Dennis Prager? I think it was 2006 or 2007. It was at a conservative event run by an Australian Jewish acquaintance of mine who fell off a bike and died in something like 2015. Anyway, uh, Dennis Prager was among the conservative speakers, and he talked about how Australian rules football players wear really tiny shorts, and uh, and I laughed really hard because it's true. And then uh, during the, the lunch afterwards, like Dennis walked by my table and said, you, you liked that joke, didn't you, Luke? And I think that was the last time I spoke. I spoke to Dennis, but when I've seen him at social occasions, he's usually like, you know, waves and Luke, how are you? And like, what are you into now? So Dennis understands me as someone who's an intellectual gigolo. He may not use that word, but I'm always falling in love with new ideas. So whenever he sees me, it's like, oh, Luke, you know, what are you into now? Because he, he, he doesn't think I'm a, I'm a stayer. But I, I don't recall speaking to Dennis in the last uh, 15 years. I don't recall deliberately choosing to go hear him speak in, in 10 years. I really think that there are just as many, if not more, people who actually do realize that it will reach oh, out and, and do it anyway. And are pleased to do Yes, and, are, and, and it's this weird, like, oh, I don't know. We, we would need Dr. Marmer here to, to add to the conversation for, for what the psychoanalytic reason for, for such a... It's not weird, right, when you're miserable inside you, you can't help but act in a miserable way maybe you can pull it together for a job interview right maybe you can pull it together for for short bursts but overall we can't help but project what we are and so if we're miserable we're going to act in a way that's miserable if we're miserable we're going to feel an overwhelming compulsion to make other people miserable if we're happy we're going to feel a strong compulsion to uplift the people around us the behavior is but but I, 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 I marvel at it. I know you so well, and obviously I know me so well, and I know that both of us, we are constantly surveilling ourselves. Yes, I know, and I the think, environment. Yes, am I, over, am I talking too long? Right. Are people bored? Are people uncomfortable? Do they want me to, you know? Yeah, higher IQ people have more capacity for empathy than lower IQ people because empathy is a form of abstract thought. Intelligence dictates your abilities with abstract thought, your potential, 
And so higher IQ people are capable of more empathy and generally speaking, display more empathy. So you're more likely, if you lose a wallet, to have it returned to you in Beverly Hills than in Compton. All right. So to, to a greater de degree than any other single factor, your IQ predicts how ethical you will behave. Now, of course, a lot of high IQ people will behave miserably, and the Einsatzgruppen apparently had an average IQ of 127. But generally speaking, you'll be less likely to be murdered. You'll be less likely to be robbed. Right? You'll be less likely to suffer some significant form of harm if you're primarily around higher IQ people than lower IQ people. And you do it in a good way. I do it in an intensely self-critical way. But the point is, I think the definition of manners is making other people feel comfortable. And especially at a Thanksgiving dinner or holiday dinner, you have to be aware of that. And so what you're saying as well, this is really a worthy discussion. You're saying as well, and I totally agree, the individual who raises some family issue is a narcissist. Yeah. I care about it. I don't care if it ruins this meal for all eight of you. I, well, or even there might be a worse, maybe I want to ruin this meal. And by the way, I want to make clear why I think that is a possibility. There, there are two types of unhappy people. Unhappy people and unhappy people who want others to be unhappy, who resent happiness. No, it, because I, I just think we have less agency than what, what Dennis says. Our, our behavior, it seems to me, primarily comes out of our state. And so if we're unhappy, we will feel an overwhelming push towards making other people unhappy. And our ability to regulate ourselves, I think, is much less than what uh, Dennis is proposing here. Happy people. Not all unhappy people resent happy people, but many do. And so you're enjoying this Thanksgiving meal? They're not saying this consciously to themselves, but, but it is animating. Because otherwise, how does one explain it? Why are you raising that issue? We're getting along fine talking about the weather. It's very bizarre, but I've witnessed it several times, how many people don't, don't have control over themselves. I actually did a show on Timeless recently called How to Make Your Thanksgiving. Yeah, people don't have as much control over themselves as they think they do. Right? Think about all the resolutions you've made and fail to live up to them. Right, Aporia Magazine is putting out a lot of good material. I just put Aporia Magazine into the YouTube search box right now. And here's a, here's a video. People with uh, bigger brains are more intelligent. Let's take a, a, something that people might be surprised by or even you know, like deny in, unless they had the evidence in front of them, which is this. Brain size correlates with IQ. Can, can you tell us about that simple correlation there? Well, it's been known for a long time. It's, it's one of the things that Gould took on in the mismeasure of man because he documented all kinds of early attempts to measure it that by today's standards are ludicrous. But what he didn't mention was data available at the time of his book that MRI scans validated mm -hmm. uh, that brain size actually measured with MRI was right. correlated to uh, IQ scores. Uh, it's a correlation of around 0.3 or 0.4. It accounts for some. Uh, it, um, there, there are attempts to actually make it more specific by looking at size of different parts of the brain. Uh, but again, that's, it's kind of older stuff now, because what we now know with modern brain imaging, uh, which uh, really has come about since I retired, <laughs> the modern brain imaging uh, looks at uh, structural and functional connectivity. So this is an exact violation of one of YouTube's terms of service, right? You can't say that any particular people have larger brains and therefore are more intelligent than any other people. So 
I, I noticed that YouTube is much less censorious than it was two years ago. And I, I think that might have to do with the rise of alternative platforms that allow for more free speech. Among brain areas in very high resolution. So it's not that this brain area or that brain area is important. It's the connect the connections, functional and structural connections among those brain areas, which can now be measured fairly precisely. And though that connectivity predicts IQ scores. Mm -hmm. And that connectivity is so uh, reliable within a person's brain that it's been called a brain fingerprint. I hate that term. It should be a brain print, not a fingerprint. It should. Fingerprint. But, um, and the, so you can characterize individuals on the basis of their patterns of connectivity, and mm -hmm. that seems to correlate with um, IQ scores. So a lot of great stuff in Aporia magazine. Definitely worth subscribing. Immigrants with less than a bachelor's degree. Are the cost and benefits of immigration arises from redistribution mainly. And it's actually going from active people to inactive people and and from the well-educated to the low-educated. That's actually how it happens. That's 80% of the story. So what you see is that immigrants with a low level of education tend to have you know, large net costs. And well-educated immigrants, for example, people coming, coming from Britain, they, um, over their lifetime, they make a contribution, net contribution, present day value of 200,000 euros or something like that. Oh, well, you're welcome. Yeah. You are very welcome. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's one of the differences. So education level. I mean, we, we found, for, it, for example, there was a study. And it, education level is a, an imperfect proxy for intelligence. So the more intelligent the immigrant, the more likely they are to contribute to society. Also, different groups, right? Different groups, you'll be shocked to learn, are a net cost to society. Certain groups, say, commit enormous amount of crime suck down an enormous amount of social welfare spending, take up a disproportionate amount of space in our prisons. So it's not just uh, immigrants, but even native-born population groups are a net cost to society. So we've got several population groups within the United States that are significantly a net cost to society. Then you have other groups such as Jews and those from Northeast Asia, so Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, and uh, Korean Americans who are net contributors to the United States. They pay far more in taxes than they suck down in welfare spending. A few years ago for, for the United States, and you see exactly the same kind of... So I, I'm thinking about friends of mine who battled with ADHD all their lives, didn't know about it until they became adults, then finally got diagnosed, and their life became so much better. So just imagine if they'd just been to a doctor earlier on in their life who was more effective who was more competent, all right? So I spent enormous amount of time with doctors. If I just encountered a doctor who could have convinced me to get tested for ADHD or convinced me to you know, consume meat in some form, right? I, I would have regained decades of my life. So this is an argument for high-skilled, high-intelligence uh, immigration because you know, one smart person can do enormous amounts of good, just like one dumb person can commit a stupid accident that ties up a freeway, shuts down a freeway, and costs you know tens of thousands of uh, working hours for for productive citizens. So one really smart doctor, right, can save hundreds of lives and you know immensely enrich hundreds of lives. Right, there's there's enormous 
gap between, you know, an average doctor and a great doctor, even a good doctor and a great doctor. So I think whatever we need to do as a society to increase the amount of greatness in our society is perhaps no, no task is more important than that after cracking down on violent crime and putting away violent criminals for a very long time or executing them. After that, we need to do everything we can to incentivize greatness. Because just imagine you've had some intractable medical problem for years that a great doctor knows the fix to. I was bedridden for six years. Then I got on a medication that restored me to two-thirds of normal life, Nadil. So that difference between being bedridden 20 hours a day to having at least two-thirds of a normal life was gigantic. I got my life back through a very smart psychiatrist, the late Daniel Goldwyn in Orlando, Florida, who suggested I go on Nardil. So at the time, I was, I was uh, bonking this, this Jewish woman who had E-cup breasts, and I was just having a fantastic time. At the same time, I was talking to a woman in Orlando, Florida, who was only an A-cup, uh, but she had a fantastic psychiatrist. And so I eventually dropped the E-cup and went with the A-cup in part because the A-cup had a fantastic psychiatrist. The E-cup didn't seem to have any connections to doctors who might make me well. So I sided with the A-cup, went back with her, moved to Orlando, Florida, so I could see her fantastic psychiatrist, Daniel Golwin, who she considered a real lifesaver. And I got my life back because of that decision. Now, it wasn't very ethical, right? You know, I was doing a lot of boning and bonking outside of marriage. And uh, I was, you know, kind of selfish. I thought, ah, you know, this one woman, there's more of a potential for me to get my life back if I throw in my lot with her. And uh, she, she dropped me after a few weeks, all right, and went back to her ex-boyfriend and kicked me out and had to make my own way in Orlando for a few months before moving to Los Angeles. But at least she connected me to a great psychiatrist who saved my life, who got me on Nardil. And within, within a few weeks, I got my life back. Figures, you know. People need, need at least bachelor's level in order to have a, a positive contribution to the welfare. Oh, that's an interesting rule of thumb. So. Yeah. Most the, the average effect of immigrants with less than a bachelor. Many people don't realize this, but a woman with an A cup is much more likely to have an A list network. So, I, I, Edward Dutton talked about this that uh, that if you want you know a long term mate, usually the smaller breasted women are more stable, and and the biggest breasted women are more unstable. That that's Edward Dutton but it does largely coincide with my life experience. Like I've you know, dated some very large-breasted, often naturally large-breasted uh, porn stars. And, uh, you know, I dated, you know, high-achieving uh, A-cups who were, you know, occupying prestigious positions in wider society. Bachelor's degree, or any qualification less than the bachelor's degree is, ne is negative. It's negative, yeah. For a Dutch person, a born native Dutch person, a somewhat lower level, vocational education level is, is good enough, but there's a lot of loss of human capital when people cross the border. So a person from Syria, for example, may have had a reasonable or even good education in Syria, but being, let's say, a lawyer in Syria is not applicable in the Netherlands. It maybe takes you five. Yeah, the, the bigger the cup, the less the sense of accountability, the more insanity it seems like. I mean, that's just my life experience. I mean, Naturally, big-breasted women are kind of used to 
coasting on their laurels. Where did I see a funny remark about this? Oh, I got a quote from you for you that you love. Hang on. If years, or you'll probably never reach your, your old level again. So a lot of human capital is lost, and and that amounts to hundred thousand, two hundred thousand uh, euros probably per person of loss of human that, capital. That could be because the training the individual received in their country of origin isn't applicable to the Netherlands, and therefore that takes time for them to learn the way things work in the Netherlands. Or it could be that their degrees are awarded in their country to people with lower intrinsic or pre-existing human capital than they are in the Netherlands. I think I, it's a combination. Yeah. yeah. And this is a huge difference with labor migration, for example, because when you, as a Dutch company, invite some, somebody from India to do um, uh, computer jobs, you know, ICT jobs, information technology, this person is educated, speaks English, and has uh, universally applicable human capital. This person can work in the United States, in Guam, in the Netherlands, in the UK, and then the loss of human capital is probably zero or very small. But this is not what happens with asylum seekers, for, asylum seekers, for example. I haven't, I haven't found the... Come on, stop it, stop it. I haven't found what I'm trying to find. Okay, play this. Giving's less awkward. And I decided to do it really just to suffuse some levity into the show because you know me, I tend to do hardcore subjects. I mean, that week, the, the, the one day I was analyzing Islamofascism with a geopolitical expert, the next day I was interviewing a Gerald Posner about the 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination. And then I thought, okay, I need to do, I need to do a yeah, lighter show. But, but honestly, well, yes, I earned it, but also I, for the audience's correct. benefit. Yes, you know, you're, you're yeah. very, I've learned that from you, where you, you are very good at, at adding very, levity and humor yeah, right. in, in your radio show. But actually, although it was... The spirit of it was supposed to, to be, again, to suffuse lev levity. I think it was actually one of the more important shows I've ever done. Because it was, on the one hand, it was giving tips for, for how to make the, the dinner less awkward. I talked about games that you can play. I gave a list of what I called bland or apolitical conversation topics that, because people suggest, like, talk about the weather or talk about food or talk about traffic. But I always find those to be stupid suggestions. Because for how, how long can for you, how long can you right. talk about traffic? Three yeah, minutes. Right. And so I gave some, some suggestions. But then at the end, I kind of gave general advice. And one of those pieces of advice... Yeah, a lot of people are looking for life advice from 24-year-old women. Anyway, I, I'm reading a new book, it's, and, and it applies to this pressing matter of uh, cup size, The Times, How the Newspaper of Record Survives Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. It's by Times journalist Adam McGurney. And this, this, caught, my, this caught my eye. Oh, talking about the friendship between New York Times executive editor A.M. Rosenthal and the publisher at the time, Punch Salzberger. And uh, they would often hang out together and they'd debate the news of the day and they would share a bottle of wine. They would trade gossip about correspondence and they would exchange salty jokes about pretty women, the kind of banter that was accepted from powerful men of that era. I had no idea that only powerful men in that particular era enjoyed trading salty jokes about pretty women. I mean, how gay do you need to be to think that uh, trading salty jokes about pretty women is restricted to powerful men in only a particular era? So I immediately thought, is this author, Adam Nagurney, gay? Well, according to Wikipedia, Adam Nagurney is gay, as was his predecessor as chief political correspondent at the Times, Rick Burke. I don't think you have to be a powerful man to enjoy salty jokes about women. Okay, here's one anecdote. 
in the in the book. So, uh, one times man, uh, Rosenthal, Mr. Rosenthal says to another times man, Harrison Salisbury, uh, what do you think about this person? What do you think of Miss So-and-so? Is she guilty of any inaccuracies? Oh, no, this isn't... This isn't the joke. There's a good joke in here. Vice was, it's not about you. If you are at a Thanksgiving dinner table, especially if you didn't cook and prepare the meal, if you're a guest, or even if you did cook and prepare the meal, you are one among however many guests you have at the table. And I repeated that definition of manners. It's about making other people feel comfortable. And you cannot monopolize the dinner with your bizarre, malignant desire to make other people miserable. The One of the great revelations, and I really feel silly admitting this. I, I, I do. Because you said it and you're 24. Uh I knew a lot of 24, but I don't... Okay, here's some excellent doggerel from this Adam Nagoni book. Excerpt from possible testimony at a women's trial. A judge directs Salzberger, the publisher of the New York Times, to, in your own words, tell the court why you hired Miss Jones. What really were the final criteria? And I, I got friends who admit that they you know, primarily hire women based on their what they say are their tits, but... Here's this doggerel. Salzberger responds, I should like to proclaim to your honor that I followed the usual rules and availed both myself and my office of the latest of management tools. I broke down and coded her answers in their logical pieces and bits, and then I discarded them fully and went out and hired her tits. To which the judge responds, I'm a leg man, you're guilty. Okay. Pull it together, 40. Fact is true. That's such an important point. And this is another thing, too. I've always respected the most is, you know, to a certain extent, I rejected the system early on. But you came up in it, and you also openly gave them the middle finger, even while growing up next to them, living next to them for years. Yeah. I've watched it with Ukraine, and I watch it now with Israel. You know, I watched in particular. There was a lot of consternation around some comments you made, I think by Ben Shapiro and other, where you were like, well, I've never seen this level of care about Americans who are dying of right. fentanyl, which I think is a traditional nationalist message. And yet I've watched the entire kind of right-wing ecosystem get embroiled in fundamentally what is a third-world conflict. Now, we can say support, you know, not support. We can have criticisms, et cetera, for that. But what explains this, like, literal allegiance to a uh, narrative on Ukraine, on Israel? Why is it that so many of these people don't seem to have the same level of care for actual American citizens? Right. This is Tucker at his best, right? I, I don't know of any other big pundit who is willing to go there. You know, I find it really distressing. And in both of those conflicts, I approached it with a clean conscience because I just don't have strong feelings one way or the other. And I'm not hostile. I've never hated Ukraine. I don't have any feelings about Ukraine. And Russia, same thing. I've never been to either place. And I, I'm not invested emotionally. So I could just I could just look at it from an American perspective. In the case of Israel and the Arab world, I've spent a fair amount of time in both. And I like both. And I felt terrible for the people who were killed on October 7th. I still do. So I didn't, I, I had no weird motive. I was just like thinking about it from an American perspective. Is this good for us or is it not? And I was just amazed by the intolerance and the willingness to immediately go to invective and character assassination. And it's like, well, I, I said, you know, first of all, if the people who live in Gaza who are being moved out are so evil and dangerous that they can't live in the region, why would you want them to move into my country? I mean, those. Th what are you saying? They can't live there because it's too scary to live next to them, but they can live next to me? So I, I, at that point, that's I felt very hostile about that because it showed such contempt for me and my family and my neighbors and my country. It is my country. That's how I feel about it anyway. It's all of our country. And um, so I was, like, disgusted by that, and I said so, and I don't know why that's weird. Why wouldn't I be offended by that? And then it was immediately... 
you know, I'm a hater or a bigot or something like that. It, none of that registered with me because, you know, first of all, I've been attacked for so long, but attacks that aren't true, you know, if somebody said, you know, wow, you've, you've gained some weight this summer, I'd be like, oh, it would hurt my feelings because it's true. <laughs> but if someone's like, if someone's like, oh, you're a hater, you hate, you know, that's not true. So I, I don't really care. But I, I did think it showed like the level of not just corruption, which I knew, but of like emotional instability and craziness. I mean, there are people, and I stopped reading any of it, but there are people on the right who have spent the last two months every single day focused on a conflict in a foreign country as our own country becomes dangerously unstable on the brink of financial collapse with tens of millions of people who shouldn't be here in the country. We don't know their identities or the purpose of their being here. Like stuff that could destroy the country for real. Right, so if, if politics is part of your survival strategy, right, if, if your, your focus is on a conflict in a foreign country and you're ignoring what's going on in your own country, Right, you'd think that would be a maladaptive strategy, and that you'd be less effective in life, and that you'd live you know, an unhappier life, and you'd be less likely to reproduce. So, yeah, being being obsessed with conflicts in foreign countries and being largely tuned out to what's going on in your own country sounds like a losing strategy for life. Well, and make it impossible for my kids to live here. They've said nothing about that, and they're focused with laser intensity on foreign conflicts, and I'm like. At some point, I've got four kids. If I'm so caught up in the problems of my neighbor's children and completely ignoring my own children as they get addicted to drugs and kill themselves, you know, I'm not against helping my neighbor's kids, but clearly I don't love my kids. I mean, right. that's, that's, you know, that's the only logical conclusion. And they don't care about the country at all. And that's, you know, that's kind of their prerogative. But I do because I have no choice because I'm from here. My family's been here hundreds of years. I plan to stay here. Like, I, I'm shocked by how little they care about the country and including the person you mentioned. And I, I can't imagine how someone like that could get an audience of people who claimed about him, care about America, because he doesn't, obviously, right? Right. Well, I mean, Tucker... That, that's a great point, and who else is making it but Tucker Carlson? All right, here, here are two people that I know. Uh, I, took, I took classes Today from... Today is December 3rd, 2023, and my Russell guest... Russell Roberts, all right? I took two economics classes from him at UCLA, and I had extended conversations with him after class, and he was, after Dennis Prager, probably the person most influential on me converting to Judaism... And I carried on correspondence and phone conversations with him after UCLA. And uh, he has go gone on to le live the life that he wanted back, I think he was probably about 30 when I knew him at UCLA. So he went on to marry a student, a UCLA student, not one of his students, but an engineering student at UCLA. And he's now the president of a small liberal arts college in Jerusalem. But he would talk to me after class about all the books that he wanted to write. He, he ended up publishing them. He does the Econ Talk podcast. So it's, it's interesting to see someone who, who I knew in 1989, and he's gone out to accomplish everything that uh, he, he wanted to accomplish 34 years ago. One thing that he said in a discussion, so he's from the, he got his PhD from the University of Chicago, which is very free market, free trade. Uh, influenced by Milton Friedman. And I remember Russell Roberts here, the host of Econ Talk. He was interviewed on NPR making the case for free trade and against Donald Trump. And he said, half of my reason for supporting free trade is because it's, it's good for the Chinese, right? So the welfare of the Chinese was of equal importance to him as the welfare of his fellow Americans. So he, he might fit into this category of people that, that, uh, 
Tucker Carlson was just talking about, where the welfare of their fellow citizens, fellow American citizens, is not that important. And this bloke here on the right, Daniel Gordes, who is a conservative rabbi at uh, Shalem College, I reported on him about 20 years ago. There are various women of his students, right, his female students, who said that he was like uh, inappropriate with them, uh, emotionally manipulated, uh, sexually suggestive, uh, and that it really messed them up. So I, I reported on this about 20 years ago, and then after the second intifada, he became this incredibly effective spokesman for Israel. So prior to that, I'd read his books, and they were nothing. They, they were just they were pablum. They were just uh, Judaism for dummies. And he's got a, a father or a grandfather who was an incredibly powerful, influential, and successful Bible scholar. And Daniel Gordas, as a leader in a conservative rabbinic school, but he wasn't producing work of any quality. Then the second intifada came along, and it just brought out a whole new level of, of passion. And he, he's a very strong supporter of the Jewish state, so if you're not a, a Zionist, it, it probably won't resonate with you. But I was struck how the circumstances changed. Israel was struggling with the second intifada, and someone who, who'd only produced pablum up until this point became incredibly eloquent. So when you read books on public presentation and public speaking, often the number one tip that they give is, are you passionate about this topic? Because if you're passionate about something, you will usually be effective at communicating it. So someone here, Daniel Gordas, he went from pablum to passionate and effective. Articles it very movingly. Uh, it was a horrible time for Israel. It was a horrible time for the Palestinians. Of course, the, our efforts, just like today, Israeli efforts to dismantle that infrastructure, of course, had many innocent victims. And so it was a terrible, terrible time. Right. But it ends in 2004. Their, their infrastructure is fundamentally um, dismantled. Arafat is going to die shortly thereafter. And the West Bank stays more or less quiet. There's lots of terrorist attacks during the course of the time of the years. Many people are killed, but it's a shooting of two people here. It's a bombing of four people there. It's unfortunately just what life is like here. The vast majority of Israelis went around their lives and were not affected by it. It rarely affected Tel Aviv. It rarely affected Jerusalem. It didn't affect Haifa or, ben or, or Beersheba in any way. It was what happened in the West Bank, or as I said before, but what many Israelis call Judea and Samaria. And life went on. Where the, where the, uh, the, the, the spotlight moved was to the other side of Israel, not from the east where the West Bank is, uh, but to the west and the south where the Gaza Strip is. And starting not long after the second intifada, Hamas, well, Israel pulls out in, in 2005, and relatively quickly thereafter, they hold elections in the West Bank. Um, and while many people had assumed that the Palestinian Authority, which was fairly well entrenched in the West Bank, would also more or less win in Gaza, that is not what happened. The, the, the actual machinations of the election are far too complex to get into right now. But the, the long and the short of it is, is that Hamas wins the election. I mean, in certain areas, they, they didn't, but they emerged from this whole election cycle, which, by the way, the United States had pressured Israel to allow. The United States said, in order for this to move forward in a democratic way, you Israelis need to allow the Gazans to have a free election, which Israel did. And um, Hamas wins. Now, uh, now what we know now in 2023 is that Israel mishandled that Hamas win entirely because what we assumed for a very long time was, although we went to war with Hamas time and time again in 2012 and 2014, time and time again, and some of them were very massive bombings of Gaza with terrible civilian casualties on their side, but also significant casualties on our side as well. The fundamental Israeli assumption was we can contain Hamas. We might have to batter them periodically, and we did, and we do. Uh, but fundamentally, there's a lot of Palestinians there, including the Palestinian leadership, who just want a better life for their people. And as long as we allow foreign money through Qatar or other organizations, countries to flow in, and we keep a military presence that's significant along the border, occasionally we're going to have to go to war and destroy some of their rocket launchers. But fundamentally, we can live with Hamas at our side. And that was what we call now the conceptia, the conception. And that's a word that became very central in Israeli life after 73. Because in 73, 
the presumption was, well, we, we beat three Arab armies, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt in 1967. We tripled our size in six days at the Six-Day War, uh, and nobody's going to mess with us. And we built the Barlev line along the Suez Canal, which was considered to be impregnable. And Israelis were kind of, you know, sitting back quietly, not worried too much about an Egyptian attack, not worried too much about a Syrian attack. There were overtures by Egypt. We know this to the effect. There were some overtures by Egypt uh, in the years prior to the 73 War. Those were just dismissed. Like, why would we negotiate with you? What are you going to do? And, mo- uh, and most of that tripling was the acquisition of the Sinai. Uh, correct the Sinai Peninsula after the 67 war, which, of course, uh, carry on gets given back in, right. in, a, in the aftermath of the 73 war. Right. So Israel captures three areas. One of them, let's go north to south. The area in the north, which is the Golan Heights, which is still a very strategically military important place because it's very high up and it overlooks the Galilee in Israel. Uh, Israel annexed that. Just So that's ours. We're never negotiating that. Um, some people leave never as not never, but Israel has, has said that's ours, it's Israel, uh, and so on and so forth. Hey, hey, oh, Ricardo. Ricardo comes into the chat. Ricardo, what are you into these days? What are you listening to? What are you passionate about? What are you burning on? What are you outraged about? Are the Likudniks getting to you? Have you achieved a, a state of serenity? All right. Uh, Ricardo, my friend Ricardo, always has a visceral sense of life that I find incredibly energizing and is fantastic, fantastic stimulus for for my streaming. So Ricardo says he's been watching Duvid and SJJ. Any highlights, any timestamps, Ricardo? Ricardo says expecting accountability from women is a fool's game. So a lot of my friends say that and they can't make peace with it. Ricardo says I mostly listen to audiobooks now. So what audiobooks have you been listening to? You've been listening to Excommunicated, A Rebel Without a Shore? Haven't done an audio version of my autobiography yet but yeah i'm struck by the number of my friends who are outraged that they are expected to not expect accountability from from women and here's how i look at it you know i love evolutionary terms so for thousands upon thousands of years our ancestors all right women were always you know smaller and more vulnerable to physical violence from men and so they became very adept at maneuvering men and reading men because they're they're very survival dependent upon it and for thousands upon thousands of years women were not held accountable for their actions there was always a man who was basically held accountable for his woman's actions whether it was a father or a husband or a male relative right that was the traditional way of organizing society that some man would be accountable for woman's actions then we get the enlightenment increased uh, freedom for individuals, including women. And so female agency is relatively new. So if my conception of the past is basically correct, that traditionally some man has been held accountable for his woman's behavior, whether she's a daughter, a spouse, a sister, or just a female relative, then if, if female agency is relatively new, it would be naive to expect the same level of agency and accountability from women as you do from men. Also, even in this egalitarian age, it's it's usually been understood that you treat women differently. Like a man says something insulting, and if it reaches a certain level of insult, you punch him in the face. And most men are taught that you do not act that way with regard to women, that you open doors for women. And so women get treated differently, right? There are all sorts of allowances made for women. Right, Men are expected to go into combat, to go into a burning building, to put their lives on the line. Women usually are not expected to make that, that same degree of sacrifice. So I think we both have a historical record where men were accountable for women, and so there was reduced female agency. 
and even today's egalitarian age, there are often a lot of allowances made for women. So a, a trad perspective that many people find more useful is to understand women as a valuable resource that needs to be protected and needs to be nurtured and needs to be looked after. Whatever your position here, it's clear that men and women have different gifts. And you should not have the same level of expectations for every group, right? Different groups have, have different gifts. Men and women have different gifts. And so I think it's naive to hold women to the same standards of men. In some areas, women are consistently superior to men. And in other areas, men are consistently superior to women. So there are some advantages to this traditionalist perspective of regarding women as an incredibly valuable resource that you want to protect and provide for and to nurture and to look after. And it's naive to expect the same level of hierarchy as uh, accountability as you would, say, men who are, low, for instance, below you in a, in a hierarchy. So let's have a look. Do you agree that it's naturally pleasing to a man to dominate a woman he is sexually attracted to? It, it depends, but yeah, I think most men want to have a sense of domination in some areas. Women want to be dominated in some things, but I've dated a lot of powerful women. Generally speaking, I'm attracted to powerful women, and often they want to be dominated, say, in one area, and they've got an incredible amount of responsibility in other areas of life. So often powerful people want to be rendered powerless in certain situations, such as you know sexual romantic situations, I found in my most you know, high-functioning relationships that uh, each of us would take charge in different areas of the relationship. So different people have different gifts. You want the most gifted person taking charge and dominating in you know, those areas where they are the most competent. Kind of says, my wife made a reservation for brunch this morning. She didn't realize they only serve brunch on Sunday. They need to say it's somehow my fault. It's my job to prevent her mistake. Yeah. I remember I had a girlfriend on Christmas Day who wanted us to go out to this particular restaurant, and she didn't check to see if it was open. So we drove all the way there, and of course it wasn't open on Christmas Day. I remember another woman wanted to take me to a meal because someone else was going to pay for it. And so she found a restaurant that she liked, but she didn't even check on price. Didn't even check. And so when we get to the restaurant, number one, it's all seafood, which neither of us is going to eat. And number two, all of the dishes are more than $200, right? But she didn't even check on price. So what, uh, what audio books are you listening to, Ricardo? That's why feminism is useless. Well, different perspectives work in, in different situations. I have had many great female bosses. I know it's very common to say, oh, I never want a, a female boss. You know, I, I just could not stand working for women. I have worked for a lot of great female bosses. And I, I've worked for for women or I've known women who have a much you know, higher sense of agency and accountability than most men I know. So... You know, different perspectives are more adaptive in different circumstances. In some circumstances, that traditionalist perspective of, you know, treating women as an incredibly valuable resource, that's the most adaptive strategy rather than being always angry and frustrated because you don't think women are taking accountability and they refuse to take responsibility. The Elon Musk biography, I listened to that too. 
It was excellent. I recommend the, the Michael Wolf book on the fall of Fox News. That is so much fun. Luke Ford never had a long-term job. I've had many jobs that have lasted longer than three, four, five, six years. So is that long-term? Escapist fantasy politics is too depressing. The Lord of the Rings, the Dune series. Okay. Uh, I, I listened to some great novels recently. Let me let me pull them up. Hang on. The West Bank, uh, which was the stuff that we discussed about before with Oslo, is going to probably be split. Some Israeli, some Arab, some whatever. We captured East Jerusalem uh, and the old city. Parts of the old city are clearly never going back. But, of course, it's also a holy site to Christians, and it's a holy site to Muslims. And it was Bill Clinton who came up with a very kind of ingenious but impossible to understand arrangement where Israelis would have the bottom part of the Temple Mount and then Muslims would have the top part of the Temple Mount. Way too complicated to actually be enacted, even though on paper it looked great. But that never happened. And then going south, Israel captured the Sinai Peninsula. Now, um, in 19... 73, Israel claws its way back to the original borders. Henry Kissinger, who passed away recently, uh, is the one who basically negotiated that ceasefire. Some Israelis think to Israel's benefit. Many Israelis think not to Israel's benefit. Uh, but that ends in 73. It's very clear now, by the way, Russ, that, that Anwar Sadat, who was the president of Egypt back then. Okay, so I like to leave audiobooks running all night, books that I've already listened to. So I like The Man Who, who Ran Washington. Right? It's a biography of James Baker. I find that very pleasing to just to let that run all night as I come in and out of sleep. Uh, Reclaiming History, right? Vincent Bugliosi's book on the Kennedy assassination, and he looks at the major conspiracy theories regarding the John F. Kennedy assassination and why they don't hold up. I like Peter Aykroyd's series on English history. So I'm on the third book of that. I like uh, The Cold War by Ode on Vestad. He's, I believe, a Finnish professor, and he wrote a history of the Cold War, which is excellent. Now, the sun walks down. All right. I, I heard about this novel about uh, a boy who goes missing in a small rural town in South Australia in towards the end of the 19th century. And I thought, oh, this sounds thrilling. It got such great reviews. And I thought, oh, you know, this is thrilling. The boy lost in a six-year-old boy lost in a very for, forbidding, you know, outback Australia. This is going to be a thrill turned out to be a book entirely about women's feelings. It's just a book all about women's concerns. It's just all about feelings and relationships. There was virtually no excitement. There was no adventure. Right? There was nothing for a man to resonate with. I, I mean, I, I spent, spent my Audible credit, so $15 on, on this, this book, but it was just unbearable. Uh, oh, what, what, what a waste. The Sun Walks Down by Fiona McFarlane. I mean, it was, it was like 16 hours of torture about women's feelings. Deep survival, so how to survive in you know, highly stressful, dangerous circumstances. You know, all right, there's a man's man's book like that. Uh, the Man Who Owns the News, Michael Wolff's biography of Rupert Murdoch. I enjoyed that. Jennifer Burns' biography of the economist Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman was the second most influential economist of the 20th century. Uh, Days of Fire by Peter Baker, a terrific biography of George W. Bush and his relationship with Dick Cheney. And so this is a book that I happily can let run all night. The Elon Musk biography by Walter Isaacson, definitely worth a listen to. 18 Days in October, great new book on the Yom Kippur 1973 war. I like Brian Stelter's Network of Lies about Fox News. Twilight of the Gods, it's a trilogy on the war in the Pacific. 
So about you know, 45 hours total for this trilogy. Terrific. Uh, United States versus Japan. Uh, Missionaries by Phil Clay. Great novel about America's numerous wars since 9-11. The Last Politician, pretty good. It's Franklin Foyer's book on the Joe Biden administration. I liked American Carnage by Tim Alberta. So the rise of, of Donald Trump. So it starts with the rise of the Tea Party after the election of Barack Obama and goes through to uh, 2018. Ah, two novels by Nathan Hill. The next was one, and Wellness. Great fun, these two novels by Nathan Hill. Uh, I like this book by two women, How to Talk to Kids, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen, and How to Listen So Kids Will Talk. It was recommended by Andrew Gelman, the Columbia University statistics professor. Uh, Verbal Judo. Excellent book by an English professor who is also a policeman, Verbal Judo. The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes. That was great. Masters of the Air, thrilling book about the Allied air campaign against Germany. The Age of Entitlement by Christopher Cordwell, about how we essentially replaced our American Constitution with a new civil rights constitution and the effects of that. American Prometheus, right, which is a biography of... Oppenheimer, uh, Middle March by George Eliot, my favorite novel, The Rise of Modern Japan, terrific course from The Great Courses about the rise of modern Japan, Disney War. I mean, this came out 15 years ago, Conflicts Over the Corporation of Disney by James Stewart, still good read, A Little History of Poetry by John Kerry, A World Undone by G.J. Meyer, terrific history of World War I, Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes, 17th century book, uh, kind of the, the basis for my worldview that uh, without without government, life is nasty, brutish, solitary, and short. Unscripted, latest book by James Stewart about uh, Paramount and that uh, you know hundred year old guy who was carrying on in a ridiculous fashion and how his daughter tried to seize back control of Paramount. Uh, the Power Broker by Robert Caro about Robert Moses, who was about the most powerful person in New York for many decades of the 20th century without ever winning political office. Raven Rock is a great book on various American plans to try to survive a nuclear war. Britain at Bay is about Britain's participation in World War II, the first half of that. The 9-11 Commission Report, good read. Confidence Man, Maggie Haberman's biography of Donald Trump. The Divider, Peter Baker's biography of Donald Trump. Iron Kingdom, a history of the Prussians. Top of the Morning, Brian Stelter's book on TV news. Yeah, Sumner Redstone, his ridiculous carryings on, and how Sherry Redstone, eventually his daughter, sees back control. Scientist by Richard Rhodes is a, a good uh, biography of uh, one particular scientist who, who writes really well. I'm forgetting his name. Passage of Power book about Lyndon Baines Johnson from 1960 to 1964, The Extended Mind by Annie Murphy Paul, talking about how things outside of our mind affect our thinking, such as we think differently when we go for a walk, when we're standing up versus sitting down versus lying down, how our surroundings, we think differently outside than inside. A Man in Fall, great novel by Tom Wolfe. The Mirror and the Light, terrific trilogy by Hilary Mantel about... uh, this uh, Cromwell figure who was an assistant to King Henry VIII. Aftermath, great book on Germany after World War II. 
Stephen Cotkin's two volumes on Stalin. Effective communication skills, a course in the great courses. Your public persona, self-presentation in everyday life. Another course from the great courses. All the Pretty Horses, novel by Cormac McCarthy. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. So it's about 120 hours, and I'm about 60 hours in. The Silly Grossman in the Soviet Century. He was a terrific Jewish Soviet novelist and journalist. He wrote a novel called Stalingrad. Empire of Pain. It's about opioids and the Sackler family. The Plot. Good, good novel. Brain's Way of Healing. The or on the Origin of Species. So that was about 25 hours. Probably the most influential, important scientific book ever written by Charles Darwin. One L by Scott Turow, his experience of first year law school. Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Uh, Wolf Hall Trilogy by Hilary Mantel. The Mind-Body Prescription by John Sano. You Are a Comedy Special. The Peloponnesian War by Donald Kagan. Mastering Stand-Up. The History of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. So in realist international relations, there are often allusions made to Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, which was compiled about 2,400 years ago. So I figured I, I better settle down and uh, learn, learn about this war. So thesis is that it was the rise of Athens, which threatened the top dog in that time, Sparta, and precipitated you know, this vicious you know, ongoing conflict. Uh, five Families, about the mafia, largely in New York City, by Selwyn Rabb. So when I was writing about the mafia and the porn industry, I remember reaching out and calling Selwyn Rabb, who was the mafia specialist for the New York Times. He didn't really know much. Hoax by Brian Stelter, another book about Fox News. Okay, that's pretty boring. Okay, to read this crap. These books sound like crap. What else does the chat say? What percentage of these books get read to no one while you're sleeping? So I only listen to them while I'm sleeping if I've already listened to them. Because if I haven't already listened to them, it will be too exciting and it won't enable my sleep. But because it's comforting knowing what's going to happen. But it's been a while since I've listened to them. So it's still moderately interesting, but not too interesting. If the book's too interesting, it's going to inhibit my sleep. And if it's completely dull and totally familiar to me, it's going to be unbearable to listen to. So I need something kind of in that that sweet sweet spot. Brian Stelter, come on, Luke. Hope you didn't pay for that. He's a he's a good journalist. I, I don't agree with his, his liberal worldview. But uh oh, wait, foolish me. Elliot Blatt. Elliot, what's going on, man? I'm Yo, listening. Happy, oh, blessings, New Year's blessings. blessings uh, how you doing, Luke? Bless. Uh, blessed to have you in my life, bro. Oh, yes. Me, me and back at you. You know, <clears throat> yeah, I asked you that question about New Year's resolutions, and it's not a practice of yours? Not really, no. Oh, okay. I like it. I like it's a good feeling. I, I like New Year's Day. I like the whole holiday season, actually. Right through Coughness to New Year's. <laughs> it's a nice, it's a nice, nice face out the year. Feels like you're turning over a new page. I really like that feeling. So. I've been contemplating my resolutions. If you if you observe <clears throat> if you observe Rosh Hashanah, you could have two New Years, and you could have double the good feelings. Yeah, then you could do Chinese New Year in February, triple, triple down. 
uh, yeah, we can do it all. Uh, so, um, I've been thinking like, um, uh, my resolution is to sort of, um, be more positive, you know, and not get mired in this new and all of this Twitter garbage, you know, this Twitter negativity, uh, I'm drawn to that stuff, like the moth to the flame and uh, trying to maybe winnow that back. Cause I think it does sort of suddenly, it just subtly kind of poisons your, your worldview, your feelings, yes. your experience. Yes. You know, it's like a, it's a, it's like an invisible poison. So that's Can I give what an opinion? Can I give an opinion on that? Please. Yeah. <laughs> so, with these type of resolutions, I think it's always important to to go underneath that what's really happening is that Twitter trivial and I would assume overwhelmingly negative Twitter drama is meeting a need that you have. And unless you excavate that need, it's not going to do a lot of good to just swear off it. So what what needs do you have that are getting met via Twitter? Because it's playing an important yeah, role in your resentment. life. It seems dysfunctional, but it's 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 meeting your needs. So, which of your needs is it meeting? Do you think? Yeah, it's uh, well. I sort of like they've been sort of coming up to me. So, there's sort of these lingering resentments I have towards mm -hmm. various people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, mostly family members. Sort of unresolved conflicts that I've just I've kind of pushed away as being unresolvable mm -hmm. and just kind of let them simmer in the background, but sometimes they just kind of bubble up and kind of overtake me. And it's just sort of this, this anger resentment that I can't process. Like there's no, there's no real outlet for it. Uh, and so somehow like, you know, Twitter, all these, all that sort of negativity sort of is an outlet for it, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I decided, you know, that I'm going to, you know, this year, I'm just going to spend some time and actually put energy into sort of cleaning up some of this, uh, garbage that's in my life. You know, As, I used to watch uh, porn because I was just felt so humiliated by women. Like, you know, my, my real life was so humiliating that I, yeah. I got a sense of agency and power back by looking at beautiful women getting humiliated in porn. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Uh, but, and so instead uh, of expressing so your rage and, at the people who are causing your, your rage, because that, that wouldn't help you either, uh, lashing out on, on Twitter or, or seeing, you know, fear and awe and trembling <laughs> on Twitter is kind of meeting, meeting that, that emotional need that you have. Yeah. And I, I sort of stumbled onto this um, <clears throat> um, this channel by this guy who's like really into the 12 steps. I mean, he was like a really serious alcoholic drug user for a number of years. And he managed to sort of put himself together with the 12 steps. And it's not. Uh, and for some reason, I just kind of like his deliveries. He has this very practical uh, unpolished um, directness yeah. that I just kind of find uh, I find it very uh, therapeutic to listen to and um, 
it's sort of, you know, I, I never really had any sort of drug issues. You know, I do, you know, I have a drink or two, but I, I don't really, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself an alcoholic, but the same process, the same psychological needs that sort of drive someone to alcoholism, you know, I do, I do have, you know, you know, I have problems. And <clears throat> so I sort of been, you know, listening to this guy, you know, and then I sort of contrast it with your um, experience with 12 step stuff. And I, I you know, I, I used to just brush that stuff off because it just reminded me of so many people in my, that I knew that were just so annoying, you know, yes. <laughs> and I never really gave it any serious consideration. So it, they have this, I, you know, I haven't even read the book, the 12 step book, but there is this sort of um, inventory thing. You, know, you take you and yeah. they refer to it often, right? You sort yeah. of take an inventory, and you know you you feel like, oh, well, how what resentments have you caused others and so forth, and you know you sort of evaluate, you know, how you've contributed to this dynamic, and you know, yeah, you know, I, I guess you know these are sort of painful uh, confrontations, um, and sometimes I don't think they're true. But anyway, at least, you know, it just shows me that there is sort of a practical methodology that you can sort of apply to your life and, you know, take concrete steps. So I don't know. Uh, I'm going to sort of take, a, you know, take a better inventory of my conduct, what I've done in the past, how what's I... The, how what's, I the, what's the name of the channel, the name of this dude? It's, it's called Zen Bitch Slap. Zen Bitch Slap. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And he's kind of like, he's, he's got a weird, you know, I sent you a link privately. Um, I didn't think he probably didn't resonate with you, which I could totally understand. Um, but, uh, you know, he's local to, to the Bay Area as well. So his references, his local references sort of add a dimension of uh, yeah, relevance got... to me. But so... Uh, I, I'm, but I, what I'm trying to say is like, I'm, I think like, I just have this urge, this need to sort of just tie up some loose ends. Just, you know, I think that's ultimately what's been holding me back is just the amount of just kind of unprocessed garbage that I've accrued over the years. Yeah. Anyway. So uh, someone's asking the chat who, who's speaking here. So I'm the host, Luke Ford. I'm based in Los Angeles. I'm from Australia. I'm a convert to Orthodox Judaism. And my guest is Elliot Blatt, who's based in the San Francisco Bay Area. And you're half Jewish, Elliot? Yes. My father is Jewish. That's right. Okay. Your father, father's Jewish. So here's an example. My life forever changed when I did my first proper inventory. So the classical formula in 12 Steps is you write down a list, you do a vertical list, you just write down everyone you resent. So you work vertically, you don't work horizontally. So first of all, I did a list of everyone I resented. And so one, one example for me was, was uh, rabbis who kicked me out of their synagogue. Then uh, the, the next column is what did they do that caused me to resent them? And they asked me to stay away from their synagogue. And so how did that affect me? All right. It reduced my self-esteem. It reduced my social standing. It reduced my opportunities with women. It might have reduced my financial and economic uh, opportunities. So it, it made me more anxious, you know, less socially attached, 
uh, more you know, alienated. It just made me unhappy and more financially, sexually, socially vulnerable. And then the, the next column is what role did I play? And the role that I played was that I was writing a blog on the pornography industry at that time, which is completely incompatible with Orthodox Judaism. So I essentially put these people in a position where they had to kick me out because the type of thing that I was writing about was just incompatible with an Orthodox Jewish community. So I created a situation that forced the rabbis to react and to ask me to leave. And if I was to, then the next column is, if I was to do it all over again, then I, I'd make a choice between either, if I'm going to write on the pornography industry, I can't have, uh, can't participate in the Orthodox Jewish community, or if I want to participate in the Orthodox Jew Jewish community, I can't have anything to do with the pornography industry. So I need to make a choice so that I don't place other people in this position where they need to exile me. And so I did this for every everybody that I resented in my life, and I saw how I created situations that force other people to respond to me in ways that I don't like. And when, when I got clarity on that, there was this significant reduction in my resentment levels. Yeah, I, I can see that. That does make sense. Um, I, I, you know, I look back, you know, I, I look at a lot of my family members and some of them really, you know, I used to have you know, a very sharp tongue and I used to um, I sort of, you know, I used to cut people down with the things I'd say uh, as a form of, you know, self-defense or aggression, you know, and <laughs> which I thought were funny at the time. And sometimes they were funny and sometimes these people would laugh, but at the same time, they would also be hurt by them. So that's just a weird thing with sarcasm. You know, it's, it sort of leaves, it seems like it leaves a residue, even if it's not even, even if it seems like it's well-received, it's not necessarily well-received. Yeah, I remember, yeah, I went to, there was this Jewish singles group that would meet on a Friday night, and I made some comment, and everyone laughed, but the mm -hmm. rabbi said they laughed because you made them feel uncomfortable, and I've done that a lot, and I would mm -hmm. defend myself, oh, they laughed, but what I did was create a, a, a distance between me and those people. I went to, one, one Sabbath afternoon, I went to this pool party, and I met a guy who was in his 20s, but he had a bald head. And I said to him, oh, the only people I know who you know, young and have a bald head have got cancer. And <laughs> he had cancer, and I was not <laughs> invited back to that, to that pool party. So I was saying a whole bunch of things that were sarcastic and cutting, and it just made people want to avoid me and not want to invite me or allow me back in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so what is your relationship to sarcasm now? Oh, I, I love it, but I, I, I'm much more careful about how I display it. And here, here's something that I found. Generally speaking, with my most intense character defects, my self-control has been of virtually no use. So, Desiring to control my expression of sarcasm has done me very little good. I had to change my state. Like I had to change my predisposition towards other people. I had to change my state at work, for example, 
to the idea that I was here to help my clients. And as long as I kept helping my clients as the number one priority, then I naturally did not incline to cutting, wounding, antisocial commentary. So deliberately trying to restrict myself from saying anything sexually or politically provocative did not help me because I could not do it. But when I was able to change my predisposition or my state so that I was just primarily focused on being of service to other people in a certain time and place, then the good behavior flowed from that naturally, and I did not have to employ nearly as much self-control. I've tried to design a life where I have to use as as little self-control as possible because self, my self-control is so limited and not terribly effective. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you know, I think, you know, I think, you know, I think you do have an appreciation of sarcasm and I think oh, that's yeah. probably why I like these streams, you know, yeah. it seems like a, it's like a box, like a safe space for sarcasm, you know, where you can just kind of let it rip. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of get it out of your system. So you don't sort of sabotage the rest of your life by blowing, blowing things up. Um, yeah, if I didn't have this, I would be more inappropriate in the rest of my life. Now, right. I know that I'm verbally impulsive, so I write things down. You know, as I'm yeah. going through the day, I'm in polite society. I just like write things down that I want to say uh, on a live stream, but would be inappropriate to say in the context that I was in. So this is this is a big deal for me. I mean, often when I've had a very painful or frustrating day, I then do a live stream so I, I can do something that I'm good at and I can express my my rage, resentment, sarcasm, cutting humor, et cetera, in, in, in a live stream and just, yeah, express it rather than expressing it directly to people in situations where it'd be counterproductive. All right. L- let me give you a little story here. Um, so this new bagel place opened up my neighborhood, which has been great because, you know, if I wanted a bagel, it's just a few blocks away. I used to have to like, drive a mile or two to get a bagel, right? And so... In this new bagel place, there's this, it's kind of run by a couple of hippies, you know, and they're very nice people and they've really done a great thing for the neighborhood. And I really, and I'm really glad they did this, you know, because it's one of the few bright spots uh, in the news, right? And so I go there, I've been going there, you know, and I say, right, can, I have, can I have three bagels, you know? And, um, and then she would put a fourth one in for free, you know? Mm-hmm. And this would go on. This is, would go on for weeks. So I think she just kind of took a shine to me because I was sort of cheerful with her and, you know, appreciative of the work they'd done and so forth. And so I had this little thing going on where I'd get this little free bagel bonus, you know. <laughs> it was just a tiny little, uh, a nice surprise in your day where you've paid for three bagels and you look in the bag and you got four, you know. It's a very Jewish story, I guess. So anyway, this goes on for weeks. And, <laughs> and then it's like... Um, uh, it'd been like, it was a particularly cold day. And, you know, I said, huh, yeah, this weather's kind of cold, you know? And she said, yeah. And then I sort of slipped in there. You know, I think this whole global warming thing's a hoax. <laughs> Just completely, completely volunteered this for no reason whatsoever, right? Yeah. And she was like, shocked, you know? Just like, she, she was like, um, uh, you know, you could tell this this little comment, which was completely gratuitous. It didn't really need to happen, but I did it anyway. 
and this rubbed her the wrong way. And then we sort of got in this very polite little banter about it, you know, and I just started going on my talking points, her talking points. And so we got in this little teeny mini argument, right? And, and then you know, I let it drop. I sort of realized what I was doing and how futile it was and how stupid it was. So I just kind of let it drop. But ever since then, I never got another bonus bagel. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And it was like, oh, what you say does matter, you know? Yeah, so I mean, I've been in intimate relations where, you know, I was having fantastic sex. And then I said one thing and the sex spigot was turned off. <laughs> like one little quick, sarcastic remark. And that was yeah. it. No more sex for me. Like the sex All Nazi. Right. I, I got another story. Now I want to tell you. So if I behave appropriately or inappropriately. So. So I got in this little spat with my landlord, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she, so what happened was my cat got out of the apartment, pissed in, the, pissed in the hallway. Everyone got furious with me, you know. And, you know, obviously it was a mistake, but uh, she really made this big production of it. And she got her lawyer involved and she uh, put this notice on my door and blah, blah, blah. And she kind of really way overreacted. And, you know, we've had every time we've had a conflict, she has a very sort of just noxious personality. And I like to have as little to do with her. But over the years, I'd sort of looked past that and tried to engage with her in a positive way and so forth. And but then she did this, which just pushed me over the over the line. Right. I was just furious with her. And then, so I decided I was just going to give her the silent treatment, right? Because she's in the hall, she's in the building quite often. And in the, in the past, you know, I, I used to make small talk just to sort of smooth things along. But now I'm, I've been giving her the silent treatment. I just walk right by her, right? Don't even acknowledge her existence as a form of punishment. And um, so this happened the other day. She was in the hallway. Uh, putting in a new buzzer system, which is something that I had requested, right? Um, because the, 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 the door buzzer thing was broken. So she finally got it replaced after me being here for like 14 years. Uh, so in a way, she might have actually been doing it because of my request. But who knows? It could have been other people's requests. Anyway, she was uh, doing a good thing for the building, right? And so I was walking up to her. And I'm going on this head. Should I continue the silent treatment or should I break the silent treatment? Should I continue the silent treatment? Should I break the silent treatment? Right. And then I, I got up to her and I was about to like say hello, but no, I walked right by her. I iced her out. I completely continued the silent treatment. And then I felt really guilty about that. So the question is, should I have continued the silent treatment? No, that that's a, just doesn't work in my life experience. With with few exceptions, employing the silent treatment doesn't work. Now, in certain times, employing the gray rock treatment works, where you just give back what's socially necessary. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How how are you? But but the the silent treatment, it, what, one of the problems with it is that it becomes a habit, and so you intended to speak to this woman, but you'd gotten into the habit of being in the silent treatment. So things tend to compound. Like the most dangerous thing about getting into a fight is that it leads to an escalation or it just continues. You're going back and forth. And so, yeah, I think that the silent treatment in almost all situations is a bad idea 
if you have to do the gray rock treatment where you simply say what what is socially necessary interesting yeah you'd mentioned that i forgot about that option so it's probably what i what i should have done it's not like we had like you know a very close relationship but it was clear that i was still pissed i mean she what she did i think was completely over the line um and I don't know, but you're right. I, I you know, I, I think you're right. I think the gray rock was probably the best way to go. What about talking uh, to her husband instead of her? Well, her husband, you know, is the one I used to always talk to, but his health has really declined in the past year or two. And he's not around as much anymore. In fact, I haven't seen him in probably six months when I used to see him routinely. And when I did see him last, he looked like he was quite ill with something. Um, and that's a weird thing, like, you know, how, how appropriate it is to, to inquire about his personal health. I mean, we don't really have a personal relationship. We have a business relationship. And, you know, is it, is it bad form to, like, inquire about, you know, what's wrong with him? You know, what do you have? What your disease? Or is that personal information? You should just leave alone. Yeah, if you if you go from the silent treatment to how, how's your husband, what's the exact nature of his disease? I think that would be <laughs> not the best transition. Yeah. Well, that would this was I was thinking about before a little dust up. Uh, okay, so anyway, I, I'm just working on. And there was one more little mini story. Uh, oh yes, so a mutual acquaintance of ours um, has been uh, acting up in very terrible atrocious antisocial ways and <clears throat> i've been like thinking about like how to deal with does this pissed me off and um you know i was really angry with him and i didn't really want to associate with him uh because his behavior has been so atrocious you know and so i was you know it's like do i sever this relationship and then which i in my mind thought would trigger this sort of complete collapse in him and you know possibly do have him do more bad stupid things and i was just sort of loving you know i i wanted to talk to you about this because you know i see what your opinion was and i just sort of one of these background issues that was at uh eating at me and uh you know so he's been he's been like he's been cruising in the tenderloin and just just fucking these whores you know these fentanyl whores and then he would call me up and tell me about it, right? Which I just thought was just completely atrocious, you know, and antisocial and just kind of just a piggish thing to do and so forth. Considering that he has two kids and, um, you know, has a lot of responsibilities that he's not really executing on well. And so I was just really annoyed with him, right? And so I, but I would just sort of play it off and just say, yeah, whatever, man, you know. But this time I just finally flipped and I said, listen, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Um, you know, I, I don't like these conversations. They lead nowhere. They're doing you no good. They do me no good. And I just freaked on him. And it was just totally spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, he just sort of caught me in a mood where I was not prepared to sort of hold back anymore, you know? Yeah. And it felt really good yeah. to say that, yeah. you know, just to like clear the air and be direct and uh, forceful and... Um, so I'm going to do that more often, I think. What did you learn about fentanyl whores? Because I really don't know much about that category of worker. Um, well, there are 
um, you you know what fentanyl is, and yes, it is endemic now, and you see a lot of what you would expect would be like middle class women with you know potentially a future, and they're just kind of hanging around the tenderloin, um, slumped over, or just kind of cruising for a fix, you know, getting uh, I guess buying fentanyl from Hondurans. This is the I've learned about this. So the hard Hondurans are the ones running the fentanyl trade. And they just basically live in these makeshift uh, tents uh, on the sidewalk. And they all have these stories of once being, you know, you know, upper middle class. A lot of them have these stories of being like upper middle class kids in the suburbs who had like apparently like distant father or something like that. And they just kind of got into fentanyl and, and they look at now and there's just, you know, they basically whore themselves out to get more fentanyl. And how many times did he call you and give you his fentanyl hall stories before you left? Oh, at least a dozen. At least a dozen. Okay. You know, and it just seems like, you know, he, I felt like he was doing, he was preying on people that were in desperate situations and it was just seems like so low class and so disgusting and borderline criminal. And it was just nothing I wanted to be even remotely associated with. But I didn't, you know, I sort of made the mistake of playing along and acting like it didn't bother me as mm-hmm. much as it did, you know, right. yeah. because that was the easiest thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, but in the yeah. end, I ended up, I ended up like enduring more of those stories and feeling those feelings for a much longer period of time, which I, when I could have clearly just cut it off at the roots at the beginning and saved myself a lot of anguish. Yeah. So I think going forward, the next time you get into this situation, the first time you both, well, it's not just a matter of you don't want to hear someone's stories about banging fentanyl whores. You want to distance yourself from that person. So you don't even have to say anything but I would, I would reduce interactions going forward, even if you don't explicitly. You can, one, explicitly say, hey, I don't want to hear this. But two, you probably don't even want to interact with someone who's, who's doing this. So, for example, I get 12-step calls, and there was one person in particular who wanted to talk about his suicidal ideation. And this was someone yeah. I was happy to talk to about almost anything else, but I would not listen to his suicidal ideation. So I just made that a limit uh, said, I don't want to hear about your, your suicidal thoughts. Other than that, I'm happy to interact with you. Now, someone who called me talking about banging fentanyl whores, I would, I would uh, dial way back on my interactions with him. I, I, I like the idea of like diving people up or diving people down in your life. Yeah, I definitely dialed him down, but not enough, mm-hmm. right? I, I used to invite him over for dinner once in a while. And I stopped doing that. Um, but I would generally take his calls. And, you know, I do have the power not to take a call. And I And it says something the, about you that he would think you were the type of person who would listen to this. Uh, it does. Uh, exactly. And I didn't, you know, and it's sort of like... It's like, I don't think I ever put anything off, you know, okay. I, I never really said anything that would imply that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that dynamic, he sort of looks to me and 
I don't know. He, he think his association with me, I think, makes him feel more uh, normal, you know, because yeah. I sort of function a more normal level than he does. And so he sort of wanted both worlds. He wanted me to sort of provide this uh, association so he could sort of feel like, you know, he had people in his life that weren't losers or complete losers, I should say. <laughs> That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And and the chat you know, says like, that uh, you should introduce this man to Torah, but this man actually knows quite a bit of Torah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And that's another puzzle. I guess that's why I sort of didn't like kick him out of my life so thoroughly cuz he is quite intelligent and he seems like he should know better, but somehow he doesn't know better. So I just found it interesting to sort of puzzle through this, mm -hmm. you know, try to see how these contradictions could exist. And then, you know, so, um, so in my doing that, I sort of, we, we became closer than I really wanted to. And in fact, I'd boxed him out of my life completely at one point, And then I would just happen to run into him at a, at a Pete's coffee, uh, um, one day. And so he was sort of back in and I don't know. Why do it's you cute. Think... And then I sort of look, huh? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I sort of look at these, you know, I, it's probably like a, uh, um, a weird superstition that I have, but I sort of invest a lot of meaning into chance encounters. Like if somebody just shows up, if I run into you in a weird circumstance, I see that as divinely ordained, you know, it's like mm -hmm. fate has made this happen. And then I'm, there's therefore something I need to learn from because this happened. Right. It's probably flawed thinking, but. I, I, that's what, the fact that it was like a chance encounter like that told me that I had to attend to it for some reason. Why do you think he thought you were the type of person who would be happy to hear stories about fentanyl whores? Because, um, I, I guess because, you know, we're sort of in, uh, right wing circles supposedly yeah. you know, and sort of a lot of um a lot of misogyny that goes on in right-wing circles you know yeah. a type a cup type of conversations yes and so he sort of because i sort of accepted some of his criticisms of women generally he mm -hmm. sort of mistook me for someone that you know had these you know deeply anti-woman feelings which i don't have and so um I think that was sort of his his um, hook in. Mm -hmm. So, um, I don't know. It was weird. Uh, it was, yeah, I ended up learning something. Yeah, I learned something about myself. But I, it seems like I can't learn things about myself without any sort of painful interaction. I, I'd like to sort of skip the painful part. Yeah. <laughs> Now, uh, right. last yeah. Sunday night, you went to a sports bar to watch the 49ers play the Ravens. Yes. How did was, that go? That was humiliating. Look, that was, the Ravens are just clearly a better football team. They seem to be the most likely winners of the Super Bowl. I'm sad to say. Um, they, they just dominate, they dominated the 49ers at home, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> and this Brock Purdy, I think he's a good quarterback. But I think he's capable of throwing in some bad performances here and there. I think he, he, you know, 
when he's playing well, he's very good. But I think he he, he probably he's probably plo- he's probably prone to a clunker here or there, you know. But how were your interactions with the fellow patrons in the bar? Did you go back to the same bar? Were there, yeah, I did go back. I did there, go back. To the were same there donuts? Bar. There were no donuts um, because it was it was actually uh, Christmas Day, so it was a Monday. So there were no donuts. I guess donuts are only a Sunday thing. Uh, <clears throat> and the regular bartender wasn't there. It was some of the new guys. And no, I didn't recognize anybody there. And I didn't really care to know anybody there. Um, uh, so it was just kind of a drab evening. Very drab. Yeah, it was kind of similar for me. It was, it was six o'clock on a Sunday and the regular crowd shuffles in. And there was this old man sitting next to me making love to his tonic and gin. And he says, son, can you play me a memory? I'm not really sure how it goes, but it's sad and it's sweet. I know it complete when I wore a younger man's clothes. I know the feeling. Nice lyrics. I can't stand Billy Joel, but that definitely summarizes my experience. Do you have any firsthand experiences with fentanyl falls? No, no, I do not. I do not. I mean, I, I, I look at, I can look at a person's face and I, I can know immediately whether they're good news or bad news, right? And like every single one of these women is just bad news. Bad news from top to bottom. There's no attraction whatsoever. So, um, what sort of conversations did you have in the sports bar Sunday night? What type of people did you meet? It's Christmas Day. You're all sitting around enjoying a game. I, 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 I didn't talk to anybody, Luke. I'm sorry. I, there's nobody there. Like it was like a lot of like sort of older men with with big bushy bushy Santa Claus beards, and they're just talking about sports and grousing and. It's just, I don't know. It, there was no white? attraction. Were they white men? Huh? Were they fellow whites? <laughs> they were uh, They were mostly Irish. Um, and uh, there was this one woman who was reasonably attractive. And by reasonably attractive, I mean, she had no tattoos right off the, right off the gut, right off the jump. Yeah. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's one for the wind column right there, you know? And, and she had, but she wore like, 49ers gear and I just don't like it when people wear sports gear in public I think it's just day class it's low class you know? yeah I, I, mean, I like, didn't wear writing I didn't wear clothes with the writing on it yeah and everyone there had like a jersey and they have some player's name on it I was just like God, so tacky so that basically turned me off to such a degree that I I, I don't think I stayed for all of it um, but yeah it's when your team's losing things look bleak you know you just can't Seems like a totally different game. So when you when you listen to this twelve uh, step speaker um, Zen bitch bitch slap, do do you find your mind wandering, or are you able to to focus? How how long do you listen to him for? Um, I put it on sort of in the background. Um, it's sort of like sleeping type of yeah. stuff. It's very repetitive, you know. Um, and, you know, you, you, uh, you know, people, you were talking about books on tape and so forth. Mm-hmm. I, that's what I use for sort of my books on tape, trying to get to sleep type of stuff. And I think his name is Paul Hederman. Is that right? Yes. 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 
And he's sort of a celebrity of sorts within that very local, that sort of AA niche, it seems like. I don't know if there's other people like that that sort of fulfill that role where they're sort of like AA gurus of sorts. Oh, yeah. There's, there's probably a lot of them. Yeah. Um, but he just happens to be local. <coughs> um, so anyway. How many drinks? How many drinks do you have a week? Um, I have... One double, so that's basically two drinks a day, so 14. And what's the longest that you've gone without any alcohol in recent memory? A day or two, probably. Um, it's my transition. It's how I transition out of uh, sort of work mode into relaxation mode. It's this... It's a ritual, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's no, not, I get it. You know, it's a sort of, um, I think, you know, I always kid myself, is I'll have a drink, I'll make dinner, and then I'll do some more work. But it, the work part never happened. <laughs> I just, you know, make a, have a drink while I'm cooking, you know, it sort of makes the whole cooking process go by a bit quicker and more makes more enjoyable. And then by the time I've finished the drink and eaten, I'm sort of in, you know, downshift mode slowly tailing off yeah i use but it uh, sucks. yes go ahead well it makes me go to bed too early and then i wake mm -hmm. up in the middle of the night so if i could i think if i were to stop drinking i think i'd be able to sleep through the night because i would go to bed later and then wake up at appropriate at a proper time i like to take the edge off with some vitamin water oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> it tastes really good. I I don't like flavored water. I like plain water. Zero sugar. There's there's lemonade. There's orange. Oh, I but I particularly like the acacia, um, A C A I. How do you pronounce that? The acacia blueberry uh, I think pomegranate. Acai. Acai. Uh, blueberry pomegranate. A... I mean that really takes the edge off of me. Yeah. So uh, what's the verdict on uh, um, Adderall? Are you, you going to continue or are you going to let it go? Oh, it, it's fantastic. I mean, it's just absolutely life-changing. Yeah. Uh, definitely. I'm, you're going to have to pry my, pry my Adderall out of my cold, dead hands. Really? Yeah. <sighs> okay. Well, it's not for me to say. You know, It's another thing. I'm just going to learn to let things go a bit. I don't need to sort of engage... The world doesn't need my opinions as much as I think they do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to throttle back my opinion proffering. Have you even had vitamin water, bro? Particularly the... Uh, I did once and it was just like... Blueberry I, I pomegranate. I hate that idea of like... Was it just one of those waters that's got like the mildest hint of something in it? No, it's more than a hint. It is a full-bodied flavor. Oh, really? It's full-bodied. I mean, it's... Fair dinkum, full-on flavor, but zero sugar, zero calories. Unbelievable mm. amount of flavor I mean, packed into this. Maybe I'll try one, but I, I generally, you know, one of my sort of cost-cutting moves is to not get roped into any, I, I put that in a very superfluous expenditure category. Like, mm -hmm. just drink water, you know? It's free. It comes out of the tap. It's fine. You know? Why spend three bucks on a dumb bottle of water yeah i, I know a lot of that. I, I mean it, it it drives me 
like I don't buy it regularly. I just got it on sale one time and I bought two dozen. But yeah, I, I don't want to spend a dollar a dollar a drink. But it's it's such a great way to transition from from work to the rest of your evening. So one thing is, is though I thought when you were streaming you were feeling good, but it seems like you stream uh, when you're feeling bad. It varies. So sometimes I stream when I'm feeling bad and I want to get out of it and I want to do, do something that I feel like I've got mastery and agency over. You know, much, of, much of life I'm not in charge of. <laughs> but, you know, at least my live stream I'm in charge of. And so you got that, that play. You got that go live button when you need it. <laughs> yeah. I can't stop getting all these Nikki Haley uh, text messages. Wish she'd leave me Ooh. alone. I keep saying this is spam. <laughs> But she 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 won't stop. She's insatiable. Uh, yeah, usually it's because I'm feeling good, or usually it's because I'm feeling compelled that there's something I want to talk about. Uh, often it's because I want to feel like I'm doing something that I do well. What's mm. what's that feeling? There, there was a book of, about it, not zest, flow, 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 flow get state. into that that flow state. Yeah. Uh, I think I think oh, if I just go live on these two topics. I'm going to get into a flow state. Now, it doesn't always work out. Often I'll, I'll press go live and I'm struggling and stammering and it doesn't work out. But often it does allow me to transition into a flow state and I, I get a sense of agency. Like I'm in control of this this show and like I'm, I'm running the show. And so, yeah, sometimes it's to escape a feeling of frustration and weakness and vulnerability uh, often it's because I'm, I'm just filled with zest, or I've just got an itch. I've got a got a scratch. I've just you know got to talk about this. It's a compulsion. So yeah, various various motives. Um, and you know what my flow state is, Luke. It's like, you know, I'm. It's like six o'clock, and I'm cooking dinner, and I've got a drink rolling, and then. I get that notification that Luke Ford's going live, you know? It's like a trifecta, bro. It's like... Why do you think about the possibility that Trump won't be on the ballot? I I, I think... um, I don't think there's any possibility he won't be on the ballot because uh, he's got the Supreme Court. I think those Supreme Court nominations that Trump put through are going to be probably the best move he ever made. And I think... I think he's just going to, if it goes to the Supreme Court, they're going to rule in his favor, just independent of, because it seems like it's a pretty cut and dry constitutional argument. I mean, you, you can't just have some appointed official somewhere in some state to say, no, he can't, you know, she doesn't have the power to do that. So I Now, think, what I think, if the Supreme Court surprises us and rules that uh, states can decree that, you know, Trump is, it, it may not appear on, on the ballot? What would you, what would you react to that? I'd be super surprised, and and I haven't paid much attention to this, but a small amount of, a small amount of tweets I've read on this, uh, seem to imply that it's just clearly unconstitutional. Even people on the left uh, acknowledge this. So I, I think when, you know, when you hear that, I I, I think you're it's probably a safe bet that they're right. I mean, I have no legal expertise at all, but it just makes sense to me. The arguments in favor of the the Supreme Court overturning it are just much more persuasive to me, the ones I've heard. So 
Well, my reaction be I'll be surprised, and I'll probably be a touch angry, I guess. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of would like to see Trump win, but at the same time, I'm just kind of sick of all this rancor. It's just really, it's a drag, you know? Who would you support among the other Republican nominees for president, aside from Trump? Um... I guess, you know, I guess Christie would be probably the most effective. He seems to be the most intelligent. I don't, I just don't want, I just don't want to look at a big fatty president though, bro. It would hurt me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It would be very depressing if it's not Trump. I don't, you know, I like Roger Swamy. I mean, he sounds, you know, he's intelligent, well-spoken, but I just think it'd be weird to have. You know, such a that racist. particular look, such that a particular racist. look in the Oval Office, I just don't think would be unifying for the country. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I kind of still have my theory that Romney's going to be dropped in. Um, I've been a big Romney watcher because he sort of—I I was living in Massachusetts when he sort of engineered himself the governorship. I think Romney is just a big power player, and. Uh, I think he's. I think the he resigned from the Senate. I think he because I think he does have designs on the presidency. And but this is just a conspiracy theory of my own yeah. personal making. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, all right. Thanks, Bray. All right. Talk to you. All right. Take care. Take Peace. care. But uh, was not looking to destroy Israel in '73. He was looking to batter Israel badly enough that the Israelis would wake up from this conceptia, from this like we don't have to. Do- Okay, talking about Anwar Sadat here, the leader of Egypt. Negotiate with you and say, oh, actually, maybe we should negotiate with you. And in that regard, he won the war. In other words, he did not win any territory and he lost huge portions of his army and thousands and thousands of Egyptian soldiers were killed. But in 1977, Menachem Begin, a right winger, is elected. The world is, you know, as we say, Anita Shrank about, they're going, oh my God, Israel elected a former terrorist as a prime minister. Now the Middle East is really going to be in trouble. But Anwar Sadat goes to his parliament and says, I'm willing to go to Jerusalem and negotiate right now about a peace with Israel in exchange for the Sinai and so on and so forth. And to make a very long, complicated story short, that's what happens. And by 1979, the Sinai Peninsula is back in Egyptian hands. Um, Arafat and Begin share the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, sorry, not Arafat. Uh, Anwar Sadat and Begin share the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, Arafat will get it later, undeservedly, but nonetheless, that's another story. Uh, and shortly thereafter, of course, Sadat will be killed by his own army for having committed the treasonous act of making peace with Israel. But that peace, by the way, has held. I mean, it's been a very long time since 1979. And amazingly enough, that peace has held uh, for almost half a century, not quite, but almost half a century. Um, and Egypt has played a critically important role helping Israel contain Hamas on the Gaza Strip, both in this current war and in previous wars. So I remember talking to someone who was right wing in 1979. I was 13. And I said, you have to give Jimmy Carter credit. He you know, had the Camp David peace accords and he facilitated peace between Israel and Egypt. And my right-wing friend said, yeah, but he essentially just bought peace because the United States is sending billions of dollars now to Israel and Egypt, and we're bribing them to maintain a state of peace. Of course. Now, let's just come back to now what's different now and then. Um, so we said 2000 and 2004 is a terror war. It makes Israelis miserable, nervous. There's thousands of casualties on both sides. But again, as I said before, you can't destroy a country um, by blowing up cafes and buses. You just you can't. You, can't, you couldn't win the Second World War that way, and you couldn't win this war that way either. What we now know is that what started in 2005, 2006 with Hamas is taking over the, the, West, uh, the Gaza Strip was the beginning of a situation in which there was actually not a terrorist organization in Gaza, but an army. 
Israel did not realize that until October 7th. We always had the sense, yeah, they have rockets. What are they going to do with rockets? They're going to kill some people, but they're not going to be able to take over our country. But what happened on the morning of October 7th, of course, was that somewhere around 3,000, some of them fairly well-trained, not terrorists, soldiers. I mean, they're terrorists, but they were, they were soldiers. They were trained. They had equipment. They came by land, by sea, and by air. And people might say, by air, they don't have an air force. Well, they came by hang gliders. And it was pretty ingenious. And just this weekend, I'm sure you've seen on the news rest there, Israel started to release the videos of them coming on land by sea in these little inflatable dinghies outside the kibbutz of Khulit and completely unopposed. There's no Israeli response. These guys just get out with their submachine guns and they, you know, they exit just like Normandy, sort of, you know, they come onto the beach and they run into the kibbutzim and we know what happened. I mean, they, they killed 1,400 Israelis. Uh, they raped gang raped, mutilated, did all sorts of just unspeakable things to apparently dozens, maybe hundreds of women. Um, for Israel, a very, very sore point here is that international women's organizations have been entirely silent about the sexual violence that was committed against Israeli women, which of course would not be the case had that been committed against any other population anywhere in the world. Um, and for several days, I mean, certainly October 7th and 8th, and some of them survived the 9th and the 10th, um, Israel was actually taken over. Parts of Israel were taken over by Hamas terrorists. The, the army had to go back and recapture army bases. Uh, it did, but not until many, many soldiers were, were dead. Hundreds of soldiers were killed before the war even started. Hundreds of soldiers and policemen together. Uh, it was 200 something um, were killed before the actual army response opened the war. And so this is an existential battle. Why is this is an existential battle? Because we now have somewhere between 150 and 200,000 Israelis who are not living in their homes. And I don't mean they move next door. They move to an entirely different part of the country. They have moved by the thousands and thousands to the Dead Sea area and been put up in hotels. They've moved to Eilat, where they're being, which is the southernmost tip of Israel these days, where they're being put up in hotels. They've left the north, where Hezbollah reigns from Lebanon. Um, they've moved to areas around the Sea of Galilee and other parts of the Galilee. In other words, we have two major areas. It, it's amazing that Hamas can still send rocket barrages into Israel, right? Two months into the Israeli invasion of Gaza, and yet Hamas is still capable of sending a rocket barrage into Israel. I don't think any nation would put up with having a neighbor who sends rockets you know, into your territory. So it's kind of amazing that Israel has held off as long as it has from invading Gaza. Is now in which Israel is fundamentally unable to keep its citizens safe. So it has evacuated those citizens. And the citizens now are saying, we're never going back until you destroy the enemy that can rain terror on us. We're not willing to raise our kids anymore, running to the bomb shelters in the middle of the night. We're certainly not willing to raise our children in the north or in the south, in the north near the Lebanese border, in the south along the Gaza border, with the possibility that people can come over the border again and rape and pillage and burn and murder and, 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 and do horrible things. We don't trust the government. We don't trust the army. Um, so now all of the IDF's uh, efforts are focused on the south. But if you listen to the news, which I was just doing this morning, the conversation is also about the north. Like, when is the army going to turn from the issue in the south to the north? Because the people in the north are not going to move back to Kiryat Shmona, which is a fairly mid-sized city, and to Shlomi, which is a much smaller city, and to dozens and dozens of kibbutzim and towns and villages along that area until Hezbollah is either disarmed or moved some five kilometers back from the border. Uh, not clear how that's happening, going to happen. It's apparently the case that France is very involved in international diplomacy, trying to get Lebanon to force Hezbollah away from the border. Israel does not open a military front there. Uh, but we're in a very different situation here in, uh, now in the end of, well, at the beginning of December 2023. This is an existential war. If we cannot win this war, and I'm going to say something a little controversial, it's not clear that we can. It's just not clear that we can. And if you look at the press this past weekend, this was the first weekend since the war started in which there was lots of stuff about how all these army briefings are basically BS. The army is telling us what they want us to hear, and they are not covering all of the military failures that have taken place since the beginning of the war. I mean, we won't go into it now, but the country is sobering up after the first two months of a sense of huge unity and a huge, you know, on all the TV screens, together we're going to win. We may win, and we may not win. And if we do not win, it's not clear how any citizens move back to any place along the Gaza border or how any citizens move back to anything along the northern border, which ironically and crazily means they don't have to have any boots on the ground and they can still have captured territory. They can have nobody on our side of the border and still make huge swaths of Israel with important agricultural, technological, and tourist areas all included. And Hezbollah has tens of thousands of rockets that can reach anywhere in Israel. 
So if it chose to unleash these rockets, thousands of Israelis would die within hours. Habitable. And that's where we are now. This is not the second intifada, which was sad, but not existential. This is existential. So I, we're not going to get into the weeds of the military, but I, I too, and the campaign, you know, I look at the, um, I watch the news occasionally. And the reason it's occasional is because... So both uh, the host here, Russ Roberts, my former UCLA economics professor, and Daniel Gordas, all right, they are both, I believe, based in Jerusalem. And uh, Hezbollah has you know, the rocket capability of hitting Jerusalem. My Hebrew's not very good, but I like to look at the pictures, and the pictures are very depressing. We, we see uh, huge portions, it appears, of northern Gaza reduced to rubble. It's not clear how that leads to victory. It clearly has um, destroyed a lot of... Gazan infrastructure. We don't know how many people have been killed there, but it's a lot and it's horrible. Um, and it's not obvious what the end game is. Uh, it, you know, moving south and pushing two million people into smaller and smaller enclaves in hopes of focusing on the worst of them, even the most optimistic view that, that most of those two million hate Hamas, many of them do, uh, but that somehow we're going to be able to distinguish the people who perpetrated this, these atrocities and who want to perpetrate them again. And I've said so bluntly uh, without, um, <laughs> without any uh, hesitation that they want to do this over and over again. Uh, it's not obvious how we're going to prevent that. And that, part of when I ask you to reflect back on the past is that the we've seen this movie before. There's there's a little too much Groundhog Day in this for me as a newcomer, and I assume for you as a 25 year veteran that it's hard to live in this neighborhood. Uh, the, so many, there are a lot of people here who want to kill us, and uh, we don't want to kill them um, irresponsibly. But we do have to defend ourselves, and that puts us in an awful, situ awful situation. The world is judging us terribly right now. Parts of it have stood strongly at our side, but many, many people, and perhaps correctly, have said this is an unacceptable response. Uh, yeah. I don't know what the right response is uh, other than to leave, and, and I assume many people would like that too. Uh, but, but it just, um, to me, it's a very dark. There are many things to feel dark about. I'm just adding another one. <laughs> yeah, there's no shortage of things to feel dark about. I mean, in the last couple of days, I don't know if you saw this in the news. The mayor of Paris. I mean, we're talking about Paris, France, Western Europe. The mayor of Paris came out and said. Hard for me to see Jews living in Paris and France in the next few years. Not, you know, that there's going to be a wave of anti-Semitism and we're going to fight it with police and education. Just mayor came out and said, very hard for me to see how Jews continue living in France. Um, somebody in Spain, I think a deputy mayor of a major friend of Spanish city said exactly the same thing. Really hard to see why Jews would continue to live in Spain. Um, that's an unbelievable thing to be hearing from public leaders in Western Europe in 2023, in the middle of the 21st century. So ironically, we're in a situation as a Jewish people where the world is saying, yeah, maybe this whole Jewish state thing really isn't so sustainable because the cost to the surrounding populations is so overwhelming. And at the same time, we're here and we're seeing this in America also. Um, you know, at the same time, uh, it's not that the Jews can live anywhere else. You know, my brother lives on the Upper West Side of New York, and he and I were speaking last night. Uh, he went to synagogue yesterday morning at an Upper West Side synagogue where Brett Stevens was the guest speaker. He said the place was packed. You know, there was no there was standing room only. People were standing in the back, and everybody wanted to hear Brett Stevens. And their assumption was, you know, Brett Stevens, the New York Times correspondent and columnist and, you know, brilliant guy, is going to come and talk about what can we expect to happen in Israel. And he got up and he said, I don't want to talk about Israel. Israel's going to be fine. Uh, not so quickly and not so prettily, but Israel's going to be fine. But I'm here to tell you that in the United States, this is 1922. And it's going to turn into 1932, and it's going to turn into 1939. It is not entirely clear to me, Brett Stevens said, that Jews are going to be able to continue living here. Now, even if that's slightly, you know, exaggerated because of the heat of the moment, that's an extraordinary thing for a cerebral, thoughtful person like Brett Stevens to say to a group of Jews on the Upper West Side, which has sort of been ground zero for the thriving of Judaism in the United States. I mean, it's a place where on Simchat Torah, the Jewish holiday celebrates the Torah, they would close West End Avenue so people could dance on the streets. I mean, it's just an unbelievable thing. So we're now, by the way, if you just want to leave Israel aside for a moment, as a Jewish people, this has been an unbelievably devastating two months because part of the world is saying that Israel cannot be allowed to defend itself if the cost of defending itself is so many innocent Palestinian lives. So maybe Jews should think about something else. But in France and in Spain and the United States and many other places around the world, Jewish life is becoming dangerous, nervous, 
perhaps ultimately untenable. I mean, can you raise your child in America? When you and I work at a college together, right? And you're the president, I work at Chilean College. Can you raise your child in America if you know you fundamentally can't send your child to an American university? Meaning that if your child's going to go to American going to have to hide their Jewishness, hide their pro-Jewish Israel passion. I mean, that's not the colleges that... Okay, I think this is just absolutely absurd, right? No Jews have even, to the best of my knowledge, been beaten up in these pre-Palestine protests, right? American Jews on American college campuses are incredibly safe, all right? Jews are not in mortal danger just because there are rallies for free Palestine. Right. This is just hysteria, and this notion that uh, you know, Jews won't be able to live in Paris or the United States, again, I think is pure hysteria, but there's a substantial demand for hysteria. And when you've got a huge demand from people who want to feel the excitement of hysteria, you'll get you know, very smart people such as Daniel Gordas, meeting this need for his You went to when you were an undergraduate. It's not the college that I went to when I was an undergraduate. We were openly Jewish and openly you know, proud of Israel, and it was never an issue. I went to Columbia in the late 70s, graduated in 81. The Jewish, we didn't have the Hillel back then, but the Jewish student office was literally right. We have no evidence that one Jew wearing a yarmulke, one identifying Jew, has been singled out and even beaten up, let alone killed, on an American college campus in, in the last three months. So this is just nonsense next door to the, to the Muslim student office. It was perfectly fine. We had our little posters about Israel and flyers about this and that. It was totally fine. There was never a single incident in the four years that I was at Columbia. It's unrecognizable. So, I mean, we're facing, we're facing a devastation for the Jewish people now in which Israel's just the canary in the coal mine. And I'll just say one other thing about this because, so then you say, well, what are we going to do? Like, if you can't defend yourself here and you can't defend yourself there, it's just, where do you go? What's the end game? And I was in synagogue yesterday, uh, and a guy who actually is also a Columbia graduate, but he graduated about 10, 15 years after I did. Tragically, there's many people who graduated after I did. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so yeah, a brilliant guy, lovely guy um, in the tech world, not surprisingly, in Israel. And he was saying something, what you were saying about, you know, the horrible casualties in Gaza. And it's just, you know, it's devastating to look at these pictures. And then he said something that I thought was really interesting. He said, what they have forced us into is caveman morality. It's us or them. And that's just it. Either we're going to destroy Hamas, whatever the cost, or we can't. Yeah, much of life is caveman morality. We don't get to completely graduate from caveman morality, right? We just don't uh, supersede it, right? Some of life is zero sum, right? If you're living in a bad neighborhood like uh, Israel right now, sometimes it's uh, us or them. That's, that's the brutal nature of reality. Can't live here. And that's what I think, that's the disconnect between what Joe Biden, who's been unbelievable, and what Kamala Harris said yesterday in Dubai, which was less unbelievable, but more expected, which is, you know, Israel has a right to destroy Hamas, but you have to, you can't keep killing these civilians. But what if there's no choice? Like, what if it's either or? Either we kill Hamas, we destroy Hamas, but there's a terrible civilian toll, or we're much more reticent to have a civilian toll, but we don't destroy Hamas. It's not clear why Israelis would say to themselves, this is a place where I can see my grandchildren growing up. Yeah, and I, I think it's important. It's hard for me to hear those words. I'm a newcomer. I've been here two years. Our listeners don't know you as well as I do, Danny. You would, you're not a right winger. <laughs> not um, at all. No. And you were a very outspoken uh, critic of Bibi Netanyahu in the months leading up to the war over judicial reform, uh, leading up to the tragedy of October 7th. Your, um, your pessimism is important to be heard. I don't think people outside of this country have any understanding or have a very limited understanding of the mood. There is, this is the way I sense it, and then you, I'll let you comment. There is an immense resolve here that this cannot happen again. Uh, the Antifada, like you said, yep, it happened again for years. Eventually we built the wall, it helped, but we pulled out of Gaza and 
every few years, Hamas ratcheted up the unpleasantness of being an uh, angry neighbor, and we'd respond, and, and, and it was sort of um, a very depressing, uh, fatal theater that was played out over the years between, you know, between Israel and Hamas. It's different. And the world, I think the world's catching on how different it is. I don't know if most people understand the mood here. There's no, and the, you, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, among my friends, which of course is not a representative sample, but of my friends, uh, people like myself who've made Aliyah, who moved to Israel, and Israelis that I've come to know through my being head of the college and, and, and getting to know people, there's not a desire for vengeance. There, there's not, it's a remarkably unangry response. It is resolved. It is, we can't put up with this. Um, we can't sit idly by and allow our daughters to be violated and our children to be abducted. And we don't like, I don't know anybody who likes the military response. It's horrible. Uh, and maybe that's not enough. Maybe disliking it is not enough. Maybe we have to stop it and say uh, as many, not, not a large number, but I have met people who say we shouldn't have responded militarily. We should have just accepted this and done a better job in the future of guarding the border. Uh, I think that's a mistake. I'm going to try to write a long essay on that. But most people don't feel that way. Maybe they should, but they don't. They feel uh, violated. And there is a, um, a salience of the violence that is, I think, again, hard for people outside this country to understand, a feeling that we were violated. Not, you know, when there was a school shooting in the United States. Right. There are things that matter far more than people's feelings. And what, what matters more than people's feelings, most importantly, is effectiveness. What's the most effective response? I don't know. I don't think it's obvious that uh, the most effective response is for the IDF to go into Gaza. Right? There, there may be, need to be some sort of political solution. There may need to be a solution of highly targeted assassinations, such as what uh, Israel did after the Munich massacre in 1972. But there are a lot of things that are far more important than how people feel. Everybody feels horrible. There's a big argument then about gun control and, and, and people mourn those losses, but they're forgotten very quickly. Whether they should be or not doesn't matter, but they are. In America, unless it was your town, you forget about those things and your life goes on. It's a big country. This is a small country. It's, it's 7 million Jews. It's 9 million people. It's like a big town. It's really more like a big family. And you really have to go to Jerusalem, but especially to Tel Aviv and walk the street. Okay, that that's, doesn't do anything for me. Let's try out Zen Bitch Slap. This is the 12-step speaker that uh, Elliot Black is talking about. Call the light, the sound, the nectar, and the word. Yeah, and you could do these little manipulations, and you could, like, light, you could see light inside, and then you could hear sound. And then there was the nectar was doing a thing with your tongue, and then the word was the breath, you know, or the I am existing. So you'd sit, and it was pretty cool. So I got introduced into that. And there I started to speak, after all. You know? No, it was clean. And uh, I had an easy grasp of that kind of stuff. This came natural. So they, I had, they had me talking at times. And then, uh, so yeah, so it started there. And then when I got sober, somebody at the three-year mark, he was running these. There was a place. You know, like, we can talk like this one. It wasn't for. No, we thought this one. Okay, yeah, we can chop it off. There was a place called the Dry Dock, which was a 24-7 meeting place. It wasn't. It was owned by private people, but they were in recovery. And it was right near Lombard Street in San Francisco, Greenwich and Lombard. And a lot of people would go there for meetings. You know, there was meetings all day and stuff like that. So this guy had a meeting called the Fourth Step yeah, Workshop. Right. And he wanted me to take over. And what basically you did, the way he was doing it, he was just had people with pen and paper and he'd walk around like, you know, study class. You know, look, oh, are you doing okay? <laughs> you know, yes. So no one really wanted to do it. So I said, sure, I'll do it. But things were cooking in me. I heard a great rejoinder to the idea that Gaza is an open-air prison, which I, I thought was a statement with a considerable amount of truth to it. But then 
what kind of open-air prison is it when thousands of people from, from Gaza are on vacation in Europe and elsewhere in the world? So people can get up and, and leave Gaza, fly out of Gaza, right? You know, go travel to Europe, South America, et cetera. What kind of open-air prison is that? All right, that is not an open-air prison. So if Gazans are, are free to leave, it's not an open-air prison. From, you know, because it says this power is going to constantly reveal shit. And so it was. I was I getting cooked every day. So I started with that, and I moved past that fast. And I started speaking about self, you know, because that had hit me, the idea of self as something other than us, you know, like a common movement that took over a large assortment of characters, let's say. So the writing, you know, people would come in with the writing. After a while, there was no writing. It was just talking about that. And so I do, do a four-week course. Yeah. And so that was had lots of people. And so we started, that's where the CDs started to happen. So we started by doing the CDs and putting them out. And people would come very angry at me and, and they'd walk by my desk. I got so the Ayatollah and the Iranian Islamic Revolution was developed by people handing out CDs of the Ayatollah before he was Ayatollah. All right. So handing out cassettes, right, talks, created the energy and the movement, which overthrew the Shah and installed, you know, an Islamic government in Iran. 25 years, it's like weird threats and shit. Then people wanted to beat, punch me outside. I had, there was some cultish groups called the Pod People in San Francisco. They wanted to sort of jump me almost. Was, people were getting quite irritated in some respects. But there was a lot of demonstrations. I saw heads come out of people's heads black. I saw people's faces go through like centuries, like in about a 30-second period. You could see the power, you know, the beast within coming out. It was wild. Some old lady would just flip out. You could see a, a big head, a dark thing above her. It was wild. Wild. Fuck. And it was like Dharma battle, really, a lot of fucking resistance and energy. And uh, I came out of that, because I did it for a long time. I came out of that. Well, first of all, luckily, whenever that stuff launched, I had a, a grasp, a real intimate grasp on something was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself, and something was doing for others what I couldn't do for myself. But on the intimate level, I could see something was using me to talk through. Yeah. Yeah. It was just fucking obvious. There was no. Uh, and I would go. Yeah, if you feel like you're speaking for God or working for God or devoted to something greater than yourself, that's a powerful source of energy. And it may all be a delusion, but it's frequently an adaptive delusion. Through tons of different conditions, because I was there a lot of Monday nights over the years. I talked to a Monday night at the dry dock at 8 o'clock. And then uh, I would be broke. I was waiting to hear if I had AIDS, which took three weeks. I was tons of sinus infections. My love of my early life had left. It didn't matter. I saw that. All I had to do was sit and something came through. And it became obvious that its condition saw out my conditions as irrelevant to the purpose. Yeah. In other words, I didn't have to get aligned with that power. I didn't have to get better. I didn't have to be healthy, really. All I had to do was be there. That was my only job was to show up, sit down, and something would come happen. And I saw it. And it was amazing over and over and over and over. It just really convinced me of a lot of things. So that's where we started doing it. So that was 30 two years ago. And then uh, it just developed because I was, I was, I was at a cafe after one of those talks because we used to go out and this is why we do it. Our group, we have fellowship because it comes from AA. So we'd go out and we were, the, I was pontificating at some place and these people came up after they were hired hearing from another place and they go, are you, do you know the course of miracles? I said, no, I never fucking heard about it. They said, well, you're talking exactly like the course of miracles. I said, all right. So then I got in touch with that and then something happened. And then finally, in 97, I think I heard uh, non-duality, the idea of non-duality, 97, I think, 98. And then uh, 
that seemed to just uh so fm alexander talked a lot about non-duality that uh the the mind is inside the body so the mind is not separate from the body emotions come from within the body so the mind the body emotions they're all various aspects of of non-duality of of one thing and so now non-duality is a very common frame of reference but it was more unusual in the time of fm alexander and it's kind of the basis of the alexander technique all right there's 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 the mind operating within the body emotions operate within the body what goes on with the body affects the mind and the emotions emotions affect the mind and the body and you know all these different parts of ourselves you know impact other parts just uh, explain everything really. yeah explained everything and you know, no matter, you know, I got into a lot of other stuff, Buddhism and shit, and meditating on retreats in Asia or Thailand, uh, you know, losing like a pound a day because you don't eat. It's just a bad soup in the morning. No one knew English. It's just there going, having hallucinatory experiences, calling them spiritual experiences. It was all coming from sitting for 13 hours and not eating. And then uh, uh, that strong suspicion was there. So, yeah, people who used to do a lot of drugs and alcohol, of course, they're going to be attracted to meditation and other practices that uh, bring on hallucinogenic experiences. Something going on that I'm not uh, picking up. Yeah, there's an underlying situation that I'm not noticing. Thank you. And then, uh, and it would be funny. You would leave a retreat in America, and they would tell you, "Don't drive on the freeway. Don't put any loud music on." I said, "Man, this is fucking pretty fragile." <laughs> you know, and they had, in a controlled environment, they had produced an effect. But they were like, "Don't." No heavy metal, no color <laughs> What the fuck? You know what I mean? Jesus Christ. But that, like, you know, fucking Victorian glass is going to break at any second. It was getting me very suspicious. It really was. Because how could this be the original condition that has to be held with such fragility? And it should be an all wheel drive condition, I would feel. I mean, seriously. You know? And some of the old teachers from the guru would say, hey, listen, if you can't be in a meditative safe on, in, a, you know, Fifth Avenue in New York, uh, then fucking forget about it. This isn't about you know having pristine conditions because it should be much more uh, dog shit, much more tactile, much more available. And that suspicion was there. And then non-duality explained it to me. Yeah, and yeah, we can record this now. The explanation was uh, there was a huge role going on this idea of a long-lasting independent separate entity. Yeah, that is so sure of its unsure conditions and shit like that was basically the equation why the mathematics wasn't working because the mathematics I feel the primary number is zero. If not one. And basically all of my equations had one included in it, me. Yeah. And finally. So I believe uh, guru is a Hindu word, Hindu concept of, you know, a teacher with special power and wisdom. Now it's probably more often used uh, as a negative term. But, uh, you know, I love the podcast Decoding the Gurus. So this podcast defines guru, someone who has a special insight they provide to their followers through mastery of a particular technique for someone like uh, the previous speaker. It's his mastery of meditation and 12-step, and that becomes his primary technique for laying meaning over the world. Dennis Prager, it's his mastery of uh, Torah. So gurus often sound incredibly profound, and if they manipulate knowledge and you know, try to manipulate people's emotions, in a way that's bad for them, all right, obviously you've got something negative going on. So a consistent 
feature of wannabe gurus is they present themselves as vital figures in a cosmic struggle. With Doomsday and the Fall of the West just moments away, less people watch them on Rumble, contribute to them on Locals, you know, watch their new episode, subscribe, like. So they are obsessed with this image of being intellectual renegades fighting the entrenched powers, yet the exact same rhetoric is pumped out every day on every major right-wing channel by the most popular conservative and heterodox hosts that they speak with. So that's the perspective of decoding the gurus. They refer to Christopher Rufo, just another narcissistic polemicist addicted to attention. That's not my perspective. My perspective is that uh, Christopher Rufo is probably the most effective Republican polemicist in the United States today. Another description of these type of gurus, contrarian rage baiter. So here are some of the warning signs with uh, the guru and Stanford professor, Andrew Huberman. One, he portrays criticism as haters making illegitimate attacks, overhyped studies with significant limitations, uses strategic disclaimers, promotes supplements with limited evidence, and fawns over Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman. So there are negative gurus, right? Gurus who falsely portray themselves and portray how much knowledge and wisdom they have. And then there are those who have a reasonable amount of wisdom and insight into life. So I like what uh, psychologist and co-host of Decoding the Gurus, Matthew Brown, says, how to lay meaning over the world and provide guidance for your life. Right? The secular guru, they cloak themselves in a different garb. People still have the same urge to find meaning in the world. They want guidance for their dilemmas. And for the modern secular gurus, just like the old-fashioned religious gurus, there are strong motivations to lean into this role. You get recognition, attention, respect, and financial and often sexual rewards. So the through line for gurus is the ability to deal with the unseen world. They ground their expertise not in the ability to manipulate esoteric forces or to commune with the ancient masters, but with their secular knowledge. The personal qualities, you need to be a good guru, and the man we were just watching does have these qualities. You need to be a performer. You need to be charismatic. That means you transmit energy to people. You have to put on a good show. You have, have to have preternatural levels of self-confidence and self-assurance. You need that ability to project authority and wisdom, to sound profound, to send people the message that you have the capacity for unique insights, that you are connected to forces beyond their ken and they need to listen to you. So those are the personal characteristics of the guru. Really, instead of getting better, a better me, or using me to get to a larger me, I just lost it, started losing interest in me because I had recognized it as far in recovery. And then I, non-duality brought it to the point of non-existence, not even that it's foreign, that it doesn't actually exist. Yeah, it never did, it never will. We're just living as if it already has, and it's going to, yeah. And there's a huge magic trick, I feel in this place because in dreaming there's like two fundamental aspects there's time and space yeah so there's because things are going to appear and they need space to do that and it's going to take time to see it yeah yeah so you see something 800 feet away and it moves closer so time and space time and space and the way i never really questioned it i was pointed at through time and space was time was linear yeah and there was a past and there was a large patch of that past. I don't remember. I had to rely on my parents to tell me how I was when I was a kid because I didn't seem to be there. But there's a past, and it's the it's just moving really in and in in it could be an unimportant way through the present to get to the future. And basically, 
on the mental scale, the past and the future is much important, more important than what it's, what the, there's that little passage through the present, which is the only place you can be, the only time you can be. It didn't seem to be getting emphasized at all. The emphasis was on past and future. Right. To, to be a guru, you have to be able to lay this tapestry of meaning on the world. When I was bedridden by a chronic fatigue syndrome, all the ways that I found meaning and purpose in life had disappeared. And so Dennis Prager offered an opportunity to join the Prager force, right, to join him in the battle for good against evil. And this gave meaning and purpose and excitement and drive to my life when everything else had, had failed me. So people who are failing at life, people who feel there's something, you know, significantly missing, that their life just isn't firing on all cylinders, right? They are particularly vulnerable to looking for wisdom and direction from gurus. And some gurus are good for you. Some gurus are good for you some of the time. Like we all need a pep talk now and again. That'll do it for me. Take care. Bye-bye.